0: Ira Hyden here to let you dream warriors know that the rants from the Black Lodge podcast are producing an in depth retrospective for Nightmare in Elm Street 3. So take your hypnosil, say your prayers, and get ready for Freddy. And whatever you do, don't fall asleep. <laughs>
1: live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning head turning ass kicking machismo drippin' dripping master podcast and mouthpiece of the Southeast. Brandon A. Lane bringing you a new edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. The month of February conjures up the lovey-dovey anticipation of Valentine's Day. However, we at the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, we prepare for an adjacent tradition of spending Valentine's with the man of your dreams, or in this case... Nightmares with an in-depth retrospective for A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. But how could we attempt a Dream Warriors episode without an actual Dream Warrior? Well, we can't. So it is with great pleasure we had that incredible introduction at the top of this episode from the Wizard Master himself, Ira Heaton. If Ira's inclusion isn't enough to get your blood pumping, we also have a full interview with production designing legend and our good buddy, Mixedron. But first, here's some messages from our sponsors.
0: Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN.
1: Tonight's guest on the other side of the airwaves has a film resume so extensive that even Stevie Wonder can see how impressive it is. It is with great pleasure we welcome back our favorite guest here at the Rents for the Black Lodge podcast, the bad boy of production design, Mick Stron.
2: The bad boy of production design? Yeah! Okay,
1: <laughs> I, I am nothing if not qualified to uh, give nicknames. And oh, uh, <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> and tonight we're going to be talking about Dream Warriors, the third incarnation of the Nightmare Elm Street series, which uh, you actually had a hand in a couple of Nightmare Elm Streets uh, films. And we're going to be uh, specializing in part three tonight. But uh, there's a little bit of a contention here or a misunderstanding on my part. So I want you to clarify on Dream Master, you are credited as a production designer. However, on Dream Warriors, you are uh, credited as an art designer. So two part question. Number one, what the hell does an art director do? (laughs) And secondly, what is the difference between an art director and a production designer?
2: Okay, both of them have to do with the look of a film. Uh, an, an art director is a less inclusive title. It's a less inclusive job if you want it to be. I have a tendency to just uh, jump in and immerse myself in uh, wherever it goes. The production designer, the look of the film is is determined by, by the set's the lighting, uh, the locations, and the camera work. Everything except for the acting is actually the purview of the production designer. Production designer, it kind of is a guy kicking kicking the director in the ass. The art director is just the boot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you've been both the boot and the
1: foot. That's pretty impressive. I
2: have. <laughs> I have indeed. And by the way, by the way, I'm just going to say, that we have done this uh interview before
1: we have uh, this That's is new this to is, me what is uh, this uh, 3 <laughs> oh such technological disaster uh, I, between the two of us i think we are yeah, so when it comes to technology
2: yeah because because you know what it, it was sort of like a like a relay race. (laughs) The blind leading the blind. (laughs) You you fucked it up as worse as you possibly, as badly as you possibly could, but you could only go so far before you handed it to me, and then we did the whole interview, and I fucking lost that.
1: So that gives you... (laughs) At the very least, it makes me feel that we're on equal footing there you with, go. Our, with our grasp of technology. One thing that you definitely have a grasp on is your art. And I'm a big fan of, uh, of your work on film, but you're not the only Stron
2: who uh, had a role in DreamWorks. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about CJ. You know what, this, this goes back, and and uh, I'll say it again. When I was originally uh, set up to to work on Nightmare on Elm Street 3, I, I was working on the effects. And I was working with, I had met Peter Chesney, uh, who was the mechanical effects coordinator on Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I had met him on Quiet Cool. He had done the effects for, for Quiet Cool. Uh, and and I was doing the construction on Quiet Cool. I turned out to be pretty helpful because I knew I knew effects really well, and I knew construction. And so when I made it back to LA, we were shooting in Santa Cruz. When I made it back to LA, um, I went and started working for him, and I was running his shop at the time. He did the preliminary work on Nightmare on Street Three. I mean, uh, the preliminary effects uh, included, in, in particular, the wheel, the wheelchair. Oh yeah. Uh, uh he was building he had pre-built the wheel we had pre-built the wheelchair and we did the gag with the uh plaster the snake coming underneath <laughs> underneath, oh, the, yeah. floor, underneath the floor amazing. and then going and then going up the walls right I had pre-built I, I had pre all that uh as the leader of the uh of the shop and, and in fact I was going over when we had finished as far as we could go in the prep I was uh dropping off all the billing <laughs> At the office, and I'm standing and uh, standing at the elevator uh, over on Robinson. The office is on Robinson, where uh, Newland Cinema was. Waiting for the elevator, uh, a guy that I knew stepped up behind me. His name was Jerry Olson, and Jerry Olson. Uh, you know, I say, "Hey, Jerry, how's it going?" We got to talking, and 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 I go, well, "So, what are you doing up here?" And He says, "Well, I just took over as a executive producer uh, as one of the producers on um, Nightmare on Elm Street three, and uh, and we got in the in the uh, elevator and i proceeded to pitch him and say well you know it's funny i know that you need an art director for that and and it's probably because those are the words that i understood it to be art director not production designer (laughs) and i said art director on nightmare on street three i know all the effects in fact i i I helped build most of the mechanical ones and in anyway, i convinced him as the elevator's doors opened I he says, you know what? Sounds like a great idea. Um, I'll have you be the the uh, per, the art director. Why don't you bring on your sister? Because my sister was doing the painting for me up on Quiet Cool. Why don't you bring your sister on, and she can set deck in the uh, in the painting. And that's how she got on. And I said, well, we'll, well, when I talked to her about it, I said, well, well, she didn't want to be on a horror film. So I said, well, we'll, we'll co-art direct it. And she said, well, that was fine. And, and we took the titles that way. And uh, then we went on co-production designed Nightmare on Elm Street 4.
1: That brings up an interesting point. And uh, you and I have talked a little bit about this off camera and off uh, you know, recording, but you worked on five in a limited capacity and she, and she went on. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about what what caused you to depart that uh, that production?
2: You know, I tell you something. The first thing was I had I had done three, I had done four, I'd done the TV series, and then jumped on to five, and I was pretty tired. And I had spent like you know four years thinking about nothing but Nightmare on the Streets uh, and nothing about but about dream theory and, 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 and what do dreams look like? And, and, and all, you know, the rest of that, you know, what, which, which uh, is kind of a stressful and difficult thing to be continuously so doing for four years.
1: You were doing too much dreaming, and none of sleeping.
2: <laughs> yeah. I was doing a lot of dreaming, not enough <laughs> sleeping, but uh, also the director um, Hopkins, I think his name is yeah, Stephen Hopkins, Stephen Hopkins. Can I, can I ask you a question? Do you know what else he went on and did? I have no idea. I've never looked. <sighs>
1: I, if you, if you had given me a little bit of prep, Micah, um, he's, he's, uh, I want to say he did, uh, no, that was Rennie. That was Rennie Harlan that did yeah. Cliffhanger Uh, offhand. I couldn't tell you.
2: Okay. So, uh, I'm going to say nothing. Uh, he was a very difficult person to work with because, and particularly to me in my capacity as representing as they Old guy, probably mm-hmm. in my like thirty-two or thirty-three, representing the the mechanical effects aspect of Nightmare on Elm of the Nightmare on Elm Street. And this director was, well, you know, we've got all these great opticals, this CGI stuff, is and that sort of stuff. And if you notice, Nightmare on Elm Street Five is is less practical and more well CGI. I mean, there's yeah. more optical effects in it, mm-hmm. and and. To me personally, it 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 created a distance in the film, and I was trying to fight that as much as possible. And literally I'd had this guy stand up and go, let's see, what's another word for dynamic dick? Oh, (laughs) we'll just say dynamic dick. Stupendous asshole. uh, He was a stupendous. He he would say, uh, he would say, Mick, so how would you do this? And 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 it isn't a, how would I do this? I mean, I was a production designer and effects designer for years. It's it's how how are we going to how are we going about, to do it? How are we going to do it? You know, but hey, well, how would you do this? Well, in relationship to how we have done things. In the past, trying to deal with a particularly mechanical way of doing effects for this film, for Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, we would do it this way. And he he would say, well, that's just shit. And he would do this in these huge meetings, you know? And it's like, well, that's just shit. We're not going to do that that way because that's old school. That's the way you used to do it. I was like, oh. This hmm. is so much fun.
1: Well, being that you worked on the two most successful films, maybe your input should have been taken a little more seriously. That's just one man's opinion. Um, let's You know, let's talk.
2: You, you know what? I, I, <laughs> as opposed to argue that, I left.
1: <laughs> well, you you jumped off at the right time. We won't we won entirely shit on five, uh, but it is definitely not as strong as three or four. But we're here to talk about three. You told me previously about the job of a production designer and sort of in the vein of an art director that everything on set is purposeful. And I want to know, did you ever hide anything sort of in plain sight, like Easter eggs and stuff?
2: Oh, I I don't know about Easter eggs like that. I mean, not intentionally. Uh, (laughs) When I did the the TV series, we would uh, would literally do everything that we could to hide ducks in it, um, probably out of 300... sets or so hid probably at least 200 uh ducks every painting would have had a picture of a duck in it and just and, and that's just because we've fucking gone stir crazy in a goddamn warehouse trying to do 300 sets in eight months you know
1: so any particular reason it was ducks no <laughs> <laughs> so just just because
2: yeah just because because you know what just because is a pretty good reason at three o'clock in the morning Oh, fair enough. It, um, I'm gonna have know, to
1: dig those episodes out and look for ducks now. That'll become a new uh, drinking game. Look there for you the kid and the these nightmares. <laughs> you worked a lot with New Line uh, yes. throughout, you know, the '80s and uh, even going up into the '90s, where they were sort of transitioning from a little company to a big company. Yeah did you Did you ever see uh, when you were there the trajectory that they were heading on and becoming this huge media conglomerate? Or was it just small potatoes?
2: I, you know what? I I am not sure about that. I'm not sure about that uh, about seeing a trajectory. I knew that it was getting bigger. I knew that there were a lot of other films that were being made other than the the, the Freddy films. Uh, but then there were always always a few films being made. And and the thing is, is once you're locked in on one, your ability to st- to stay current with everything that's going o- going on anywhere else in town is 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 limited to say the least
1: you left new line for a while and uh and then ended up coming back am i correct on that
2: you know what i, I here's the thing that you have to understand and this is probably you have to understand that everything that you do that i did in the film business was project by project in other words a project comes together and you are one of those things on the project it's not like you happen to work for new line yeah it's it's not like like when you're done with being on film you're still somewhere in new line It doesn't work that
0: way
1: well here's a good question from your perspective uh, i mean aside from the you know your obvious greatness in these these films and their ability to uh, do things that uh your modern uh, or uh, other mortal would not be able to accomplish why did they keep coming back to mixed drawing
2: because i i would be Well, a known quantity to a lot of people for uh giving you a, a great, uh, you know, a really good look. And also, also, I knew a lot about it. Let's say that you're a producer and you know, you have a quantity that you know, like I, I'm a quantity that they know, right? Gotcha. Um, at least you know that you're not going to have a problem with me. <laughs> but, it so
1: is it a, a a sort of a case of better the devil, you know?
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's better, that's, better the better the fuck up you know than the fuck up you
1: don't uh, in nightmare no street 3 has some of the most memorable pieces of any of the films you know you've got the the, the freddy snake and the the junkyard and what's your favorite thing that you worked on in dream warriors uh,
2: i love the snake i i love the snake sequence i mean it was such an involved sequence but but there's a little there, there's a secret other thing that I liked a lot that I, that was kind of maybe undershot, but but it it did exactly the job that it was supposed to. Would be the circular stair, the circular uh, metal staircase.
1: Okay, yeah, um, in the, in the boiler room. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, because that thing is only twenty feet high. It's a set. It's twenty feet high, and it's in forced perspective. So even though because it was built for one shot, and it was a it was like an enormous cone. And and so if you're looking at the steps on it and you think to yourself that the steps are the same size and they're, they're going and they go on for like 80 feet or so, uh, you know, to there's a painting at the bottom of it that they keep on going and keep on going down. And you think that that force of perspective thing that you have to remember is this is like every one of those steps is slightly smaller than the one. Before, it, all oh away. okay. So all of that, all of that is in a cone shape, including the interior cone shape. That is the windy piece of wood, literally by laying pieces, pe- little pieces of lay- luan and gluing them together until they, wow. cre- until until they created a a, a, a a thing that's completely in perspective. When the difference, I
1: guess, between three and four. Uh, were you working on is there really wasn't a script for four. So you got to kind of come up with a lot of the, the wonderful nightmare things as far as like what you accomplished from the script of three, like how much involvement uh, is there? Like, is it you sitting down with the script and just going beat by beat? Like these are the things we have to do. Is it the director sort of saying here, you need to do these things. Like what's the hierarchy of making these things come to life?
2: Well, in both cases, uh, you know, it- you sit down with the director and you sit down with the, you're sitting with the director and you're sitting with the storyboard artist. The storyboard artist was Pete Vanchali. And between you and Pete and the director, uh, and a lot of times you're not there, the director and the storyboard artists are. So then you have meetings with the storyboard art, artist and you take the storyboards and you had separate meetings with the director to get an idea of what he wants in this given look uh, of these pieces. And in, in this particular case, a lot of it, was moving forward and in in four it was moving already moving there was a lo- a locked in look to it and and a lot of the sets were already done for four before rennie harlan came on i mean he he kind of he <laughs> to tell you the truth he kind of got a turnkey version of a nightmare on Elm street film
0: <laughs> oh, okay
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of like just shut up sit down enjoy the ride put your belt on <laughs>
1: <laughs> nightmare three with a lot of fans uh, they consider it not only the best sequel of a nightmare on Elm street a lot of them consider it the best slasher movie of that entire decade Now you have the distinction of working on the most successful in four and the most popular in three what do you think was the difference in shifting uh, going forward like freddie becoming this big cultural icon?
2: Well, you know, here's the thing, and I've talked with you before, and it has to be explained why three became as big as it was. Freddy had a problem. He had the Superman problem. And the Superman problem is is this, is if you're as big as Superman, if it weren't for kryptonite, Superman, there would be no story to Superman because he'd just come out and fucking fix everything. Yeah, I mean, there's, no,
1: there's no stakes.
2: I mean, even time is not a problem with Superman because he'll go up and spin the world backwards. <laughs> I, I mean, everything works for Superman, right? It's just as true in, in Freddy's world, you know, the, by the end of the first, you know, uh nightmare and, and obviously by the end of, of the second one, you kind of get into, the superman problem with him and and the problem is that eventually you got to go to sleep and once you go to sleep you're screwed what it became was bob wanted to like really turn this around bob shea and he wanted the third one to be special and he had a good script the thing that the script does that really works is that you have kristen's ability to pull other people into the dreams and that works to kind of even the playing field a little bit so so you don't have the superman problem anymore and it's and so now you're working against groups and the group dynamic then expands the range of everything that you can do uh, and and it, it expands your storytelling abilities there's so many different directions that you can go that was one thing the second thing that you had is they decided to let freddy off the chain a little bit robert england is an amazing actor I mean it really is i mean the only reason that there is as many horror cons as there is now that that they can have um between 20 and 100 horror cons across america on the same weekend is because of all the rubber mask films <laughs> 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 because because then you can have 20 versions of jason out there That are legitimate, and you can have you can have 20 different versions of Michael that are out there. You have 20 different versions of of Leatherface that are out there. I I can
0: see where you're
1: going with this, but there's only one there's only one
2: Robert England. And here's the thing: is his body language, his acting chops, they so the second item that we did on this list of making this film as good as it was was we let Robert off the chain, we let his his sense of dark sense of humor come in welcome and- to prime
1: time bitch
2: the classic the classic line right off the top of robert's head right you know i mean you let him off the hook the next thing that we did so we got story and we've got robert and, and the next thing that you did is i said look we're going to pull it onto the stage and we're going to really expand all these uh dream worlds because the first two had been done on location, they've been done very, 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 very low budget, filmed in all the typical places around town. In this case, I had more control over them because I pulled it onto a stage and I made sure that everything was super manipulated, you know, so that that we were that that our dream our dreams were really a dream world. I mean, yeah, I've always made the uh the comparison to like you know uh, a Kmart parking lot when the uh carnival comes to town. We were that car carnival coming to town, right? And and by the time we did four, I figured that carnival was going to expand out to Disneyland. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you certainly helped uh, the you know put Freddie on this path to becoming more than just a very successful movie monster and then by four he's on mtv and it's the biggest thing you know going but that started in three with you know the tie-ins with docken and dream warriors which ties in perfectly with your podcast dream warrior review which i am a big fan of there you go let's let's, uh, let's actually talk about that a little bit okay you have you have moved into the visual range now. So you to talk a little bit about the evolution of your podcast.
2: Oh, my podcast! I, I, I mean, we started out just being me and Kurt. Um, li- literally, we were Kurt uh, lived across town in this little town called Kennewick, and um, I was, which is up- funny
1: because he's a Tennessee boy just like me. And yeah, I you know. Out on the west coast,
2: he did, and and, and he winds up. And I, and only reason I wound up in Kennewick, Washington was, uh, that, uh, my wife and I wanted to, as I retired, my wife and I wanted to be, uh, by our grandkids and my son was living in Kennewick and, and he owned this house that he rented out to, uh, Kurt and, and, and his wife and, and kids. And, and I, uh, I took him to the movies one day cause it's odd that I, I walked into his house and his house had all these great posters up on the wall, you know, from all these, uh, classic movies and we got to talking about movies from then we went to the movies. And on the way back, we had this, such a great discussion about it. I, 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 knew nothing about podcasts and, and he kind of at least knew audio to some point. And, uh, the next time we went to the movies, we, uh, we did a podcast about it and then we did it every week. And, uh, well, it was all, all right. it, it was all audio. I'm
1: I'm glad that you have moved into a visual uh, component. Um, you have a way better setup than than I do. I'm I'm just <laughs> getting into the visual capabilities right now. It's been an entirely different experience for me because uh, you were my podcasts i listen to going to work so i've had to adjust in how i consume your podcast which is still available in audio form let's oh, no we are yeah sell that short but you know who doesn't want to see you and kurt you know uh, your facial expressions when you uh, surprise one another just gold <laughs> but, but that's not your only podcast you're also on uh, project louder.net's uh, great podcast um rabbit I hole
2: rabbit hole you I just, just
1: finished an episode with bugsy Hoffa. i just i, I watched it
2: I just brought I just brought a uh, Bugsy on, yeah, yeah. So what'd you, you think? What'd you good, think of good that
1: stuff? Good stuff. And you worked <laughs> with Bugsy on uh, Vengeance, did you not? I did.
2: Yes. Yeah. Kill. Uh, we got to kill him with a baseball bat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I, this this all sort of rolls into my next uh, topic of uh, conversation, and that a film on the horizon that uh, maybe kind of things started to gel on Vengeance a little too well, and now we have a dynamic duo of a directing team kind of going forward with the project. So tell the listening audience what you got going on. Uh,
2: we got one coming up. Uh, Jeremy and I are, are going to do a film called The House in the Pines, and uh, it's it, it's sort of your, your typical uh, kids out of uh, high school uh, that get involved with uh, gangs and ghosts and um and and monkeys
1: you had me at gangs and ghosts but you pushed me right over the edge with the monkeys isn't that the way it always is <laughs>
0: the, the and, icing and, on the cake
2: and, and 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 we've got flames and uh we got uh people drinking acid and uh and we have the yakuza and oh. uh and uh let's see we we even have toy newkirk uh coming in oh, to from uh, nightmare 4. Yeah, she's gonna oh, she's right. gonna she's gonna come in and uh uh do her own little cameo in there and uh so it, it's got a little something for everybody. It's the great thing about it is they kept saying wow you know where you the 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 way that you've rewritten this thing and stuff it really feels like the 80s and I go yeah you mean like a film. Oh but don't no. because this is <laughs> yeah it's like oh the 80s fuck what else am i gonna do i mean you're right
1: i'm very very excited for this project especially considering you're filming right down the road from me
2: i i we are we're gonna be right right here in nashville
1: my offer stands for uh, for free uh,
2: abuse of. Uh... Listen, you know what? I, I I've 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 been abusing Cruise since the '80s. Oh man, so uh, yeah, the offer
1: stands. I, I will I will gladly give you. I some will unpaid, take you up on that. Uh... Some crew help uh, just to get this off the ground. Um, so, a uh, little birdie told me that Nick Benson might be
2: involved. Uh, as a matter, as a matter of fact, my friend Nick will will be there, and he's going to be uh, pulling together all the effects. So there uh, you go. Nick,
1: Nick worked on some big hitters: uh, Nightmare Four, uh, Society, which, if you haven't seen, is a <laughs> wonderfully bizarre, bizarre film.
2: That's that's proof that there were just better drugs around back then.
1: maybe so maybe so i mean you Um, know what
2: this is back in the days where we didn't take micro doses (laughs) that's
1: a a rest of black Lodge exclusive here coming from big strong
2: take that 2020 (laughs) and 2021
0: um, they, it,
2: Micro dose my ass.
1: We're moving into 2021. Think good things are on the horizon, and I, I just want to say that like all the the hills and valleys that we've had in just trying to record this interview has been enough <laughs> to drive me a little crazy. But we've there's won! no one there's no one <laughs> I would rather occupy the asylum with than my good buddy Mixtron. So thank you so much for uh, for stopping by and uh, and from the bottom of my heart and for the other guys involved with the podcast. You you really are our favorite guest, and you're welcome back and. And um, not only are you welcome, you are contractually obligated to come back uh, very, very soon <laughs> to keep us updated on the comings and goings of the great Mixedron.
2: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Brandon. I really appreciate it.
1: All right, Ran Army. When we come back from break, we got an in depth retrospective for Nightmare No. Street 3. So stay tuned. <laughs>
2: Come on now to Masked by Lance Premium Friday the 13th Custom-Made Hockey Mask down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Masked by Lance. Go order one now, boy! yee
1: Love is in the air as the 14th of February draws near. Throw out those flowers, flush down the chocolates, and save the romance for another day. Because tonight... We invite all you lovers out there to throw on your red and green striped sweaters and celebrate Valentine's Day the proper way with the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast and the man of your dreams, Freddy Krueger, as we bring you an in-depth retrospective for what many consider the best slasher sequel ever made. 1987's A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. I'm your host, Brennan A. Lane, and my co-host who is making his valiant return to the Black Lodge. Well, he goes by many names, but I simply call him the godforsaken, hymen-breaking, liver-abusing, highway-to-hell-cruising. He's the Chef Boyardee of Tennessee and the Orville Redenbacher of inebriation.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the incomparable Fat Tony! Yes! I am so glad to be back. And I do right up top want to tell y'all a little bit of inside baseball info. This is our third take. Take number one, we were one hour and 55 minutes into, and because I had a stupid phone call from somebody's claiming importance, we lost it all. But you know what? You get a more streamlined, more focused, more sexier, a sexier version And then we had but to that's, do a, a that's, quick... what I'm, that's what I'm striving for. Let's make every episode as sexy as possible. I mean, ladies, you better have some kind of spare set of panties lying nearby because these first pair you're wearing are gonna get sexy. You're sewed. gonna be
1: so wet you can drive
3: dry, dry...
1: <laughs> dry <the> toddler. Hey, <laughs> you beat me to it. You beat me to it. Okay. So tonight we're talking about our nightmare on street three Dream Warriors. And for those of you that are a longtime listener to this podcast, this is not the first time we have tackled this episode. Back in the olden days, back when we were doing uh, watch-alongs, we tackled this with very little uh, preparation, and it was fun for what it was, but the podcast has evolved so much since then, and I felt it like necessary to talk about this movie in depth with proper research, but it's also not the first time that you and I, being Fat Tony and myself, have done a
3: review of this film lost to time probably for the better absolutely for the better uh shortly after my father passed brandon came over and we did probably the first drunk tony reviews of a nightmare Gnome street three in which i said several very unfortunate things i was dipping teriyaki chicken wings dipped in ranch into a cup of hundred proof captain morgan's and eating them not stunt booze (laughs) And, um, I was amazed. I do remember like one time being amazed of knowing John Saxon's name when I meant to be pointed at Heather Lane camp. That was a highlight of that. The rest is best left unsaid. Listen,
1: inebriation is always a key point in our reviews, but I think today we're probably a little more clear sighted than you were then. Oh,
3: like we normally before when we did this started at two hours ago, we did four shots. Uh, one to Dan Aykroyd and our traditional three. Then two hours have gone by. The unfortunate interruption. So I have just freshly imbibed Dan Aykroyd's wonderful Crystal Head Vodka into my system. I'm feeling it. Uh, I'm I'm ready to give you more coherent answers. And there are some answers I even surprised myself with on take one. So I'm, I'll be able to more clearly elucidate them in Take 3.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to, and isn't it appropriate, the Take 3 for a Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, which was released February 27th, 1987. Uh, Here we are in February, and you know we're just a few days away from the anniversary of this film. It was made on an estimated budget of $4.5 million. Now, for 1987 standards, for a low-budget, effects-heavy film, that's a
3: pretty high budget. It's a pretty high budget, but as in, as in said low before, budget terms. In low budget terms, but as I've said before many times, and this being probably the a number one best example, it is all on screen, my friends.
1: Absolutely, and when uh, when you adjust the uh, budget for inflation, that comes out to roughly ten point three million dollars in nineteen eighty seven money. Fuck me, running that's a lot of money. Um, the opening weekend gross came in eight million eight hundred and eighty thousand five hundred and fifty-five dollars. Adjusted for inflation, that comes to twenty point three million dollars. Runaway success,
3: no no exaggeration. Double your budget on opening weekend, and everything after that is pure profit. This is the movie they talk about New Line being the house that Freddie built, and let's not forget about the house lovely house party movies. <laughs> the peak of highbrow comedy. Um, we love is, you, kid, and play. We do always. Part three being the best, of course, but just as Nightmare on Elm Street three is now cemented forever as my personal favorite, after a separate critical review, this movie is the movie that built New Line. The other one, they, they you know, they didn't really make much profit off the first one because they had to leverage themselves so bad. Part two, they made money from, but suffered a horrible critical la- or fan base backlash. Part three cemented Freddy for all time. But not just in America, also the entire
1: world. This was a runaway success. Grossing worldwide forty four million seven hundred and ninety three thousand two hundred and twenty two dollars. Now adjusted for inflation, that comes to hundred and two million seven hundred and six thousand five hundred and ninety nine dollars. Even in modern terms, that would be an absolute. In bomb. modern terms,
3: you don't get or horror not bomb movie. a a success. A, I said bomb. Yeah, a, it hits a blockbuster. Blockbuster. Uh, yeah, even in modern terms, you don't get horror movie returns like that, with the exception of like the it movies or like the conjuring series. And those are hugely successful franchises. And this was set in the, you know, the pace back in the fucking eighties.
1: Uh, IMDB has, uh, not street three ranked at a 6.6 out of 10, which I got to say, I was kind of taken back cause I, I thought this would be a seven or higher Absolutely, a lot of critics have come around to to really enjoy the you know the the mix of comedy and horror. This is a definite uh, winner with fans, which is all the more uh, surprising when you get to the Rotten Tomato score because the critics have it ranked at a seventy two percent, but the audience score is sixty eight. So the critics actually were kinder to this movie than the audience. As I've said
3: before, the thirty two percent that declared this rotten. Can just take my diamond studded fuck hammer all the way inside their colon. This movie, if you are a horror fan at all, if you're not a horror fan, why the fuck are you reviewing this to begin with as a fan on the fan score? This movie is slasher 80s perfection.
1: I'm sure there's some hipster contrarians out there, keyboard warriors who just want to, you know, to stir things up. I don't like this movie because it doesn't have the subversiveness of the first one. You know what? Fuck you. This is a fun movie. This is uh, a perfect 80s thrill ride that still holds up. I know when I watched it back this past week, I found myself enjoying it probably more than I thought I was going to.
3: Absolutely, I'd like, see, I knew I would still enjoy it, because I watch it probably a lot more frequently than Brandon, because, like, Nightmare is, like, my favorite horror movie franchise, uh, as opposed to, like, Friday's, uh, the Friday the 13th series, but this is the pinnacle of horror, comedy the visual effects in it are amazing. It's all around a perfect Freddy movie.
1: Absolutely wonderful special effects. Um, it hits like all the 80s beats that you want. It's got rock music. It's, it's bright and colorful. A lot of blood. It's just, it's a perfect sequel to the 1984 classic. And Google users resoundedly agree with our assessment coming in at a 94%.
3: That's right where it fucking should be.
1: Um, Similar sentiment over at Shudder, it comes in at a four point seven out of five, but the only review that actually matters is the review of those of you out there in the Rant Army. So in our Facebook group, I postulated a task to you and we put up a poll with two options. Not Marion Elm Street 3 good, not Marion Elm Street 3 bad.
3: What do you think the Rant Army came in at? You've already told me this, and I know that only three people said bad. So it's ninety five percent. I love ninety five
0: percent. Ninety
3: five percent of people that know the truth in your heart. I love you. The three percent that, or the five percent that answered no.
0: I, I
1: their g-
3: day of reckoning will come. I
1: genuinely <sighs> would like to reach out to them just to get like I want to follow reason. up.
3: Like what? Like what is it about this movie you don't like? Are I you... only like Ari Aster A twenty four horror movies. Hey, I love those. I love them too. I
1: love those two, But this is just a fun movie from Bow to Stern. So, regardless of those three people, um, 95% found it overwhelmingly positive, and I gotta, I gotta wholeheartedly agree with them. I think that is a perfect, yes. you know, it's a perfect review. 95%. Um, On Fat Tony's hit list, we have... Six. And that would be seven if you include Freddie. and by God, we absolutely we do. We absolutely
3: are. Of this movie versus all the other fucking movies... This is the only ending that makes somewhat movie logic sense.
1: I'm going to agree with you, and we'll definitely table that discussion for later on in the retrospective. And with seven kills, that averages to one kill every 16 minutes. Now, the Nightmare series has never been a body count series. Quality, not quantity. Quality, not quantity. You perfectly surmised it right there. However, a kill every 16 minutes, that's that's pretty streamlined. That keeps you on your toes, and you know somebody's going to fall by the wayside pretty... You know, repeatedly, um, on Stink Dick Eddie's titty tally, we're we're not scraping the bottom of the barrel like we were in 2020, but we we still have a while to uh, to be able to crawl our way out of the the chasm. But we have only one pair of bodacious boobies, and but what a glo- glorious pair they are! They belong to the very lovely Sally Piper in the role of the nurse who will simultaneously give you a boner, but then immediately take you away. And let's table that discussion because we're going to talk about that the 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 set of tits to to get you going but also fucking it's retract you it away. so so good and as popular as a Nightmare on Street 3 is the year it was released is equally as popular for its stellar output of memorable horror films. So let's take a look at the stiff competition of 1987. Right. I've already read
3: this so I won't pretend to be surprised but I will say this this is probably the most stacked year for horror that he's ever handed me in stiff competition. Hard to argue. We have The Lost Boys, The Gate, John Carpenter's Prince of Fucking Darkness, Alice Cooper, Hellraiser, Monster Squad, and yes, Wolfman does have nards. We love you, Fred Decker. We love you, Fred Decker. Show 2, Evil Dead 2, Dolls, Jaws of Revenge, Boo, House 2, The Stepfather, which I'm going to make... All three of my stepdaughters watched <laughs> this slumber party massacre two, howling three Return to horror height. The video dead from a whisper to a scream. RIP Vincent Price. That is the one where he narrates. That yes. Expert? Rock and roll nightmare. Blood harvest. Peter Jackson's bad taste. Blood rage. Near dark. RIP Bill Paxton. Prison. Dariar Argento's Opera, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, gotta Garbage say. Day! Hello Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, Street Trash, and Zombie High. Oh my god, what a year.
1: Absolutely stacked, and I left off the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic Predator, because if I had included it, it would have been number one with $98,400,332. That falls more in the action sci-fi camp so I excluded it just for the sake of posterity. Coming in at number five, we have one of my favorite uh, somewhat forgotten John Carpenter movies, Prince of Darkness, with $14,182,492. Coming at number four, we have the sadomasochistic brilliance of Clive Barker's Hellraiser, raking in $14,575,193. Number three, one of Joel Schumacher's uh, best films, The Lost Boys, with $32,388,898. Number two, the movie we're here to talk about tonight, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, with $44,793,222. And number one, surprising... And and heartbreaking. Jaws the fucking
3: Revenge. With, and I, I do want to... No, before you read that... Now go ahead and read the...
1: $51,881,013.
3: I did correctly predict where Nightmare 3 fell on this range, because I'm like, the only thing that's going to beat it is either Lost Boys, and then I said, I hope it's not Jaws the Revenge. And it was, because as you pointed out in our, pl- our last <laughs>
1: attempt at this... There, weren't, there wasn't the internet to warn people of how bad something was, and it was riding high off the reputation of Jaws, even though, precipitously, it had gone downhill. Jaws 3 is enjoyably bad, but Jaws 1 and Jaws 2 are in a league all their own, and really, Jaws 1 is Jaws even, 1. Like, it, it's a big drop between Jaws 1 and Jaws 2. But Jaws the Revenge had enough steam left in the... you know, in the... This Machine to keep uh, people interested, although I'm sure they probably were better happy spending their money with that Street, uh, Street three than they were with this film.
3: I remember going to see Jaws of Revenge as a child uh, with my parents in the theater, and I was fucking terrified and horrified and all that, but I was what six. They came, my Kane. dad came out mad as fuck.
1: Michael Caine, what were you doing in this film? Getting a paycheck. Oh, getting
3: paid.
1: God, you could have been in so many other less embarrassing movies. Well, Christopher
3: Nolan wasn't making movies yet. That's, just that's drum true. Shit. Uh, a 10-year-old
1: Christopher Nolan should have been making movies. Exactly. Um, to properly examine Dream Warriors, we have to go back to where it all started. That being the year of 1900, 19, blah, 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 1984. So let's go from page to screen. In 1984, struggling director Wes Craven and small-time distribution company known as we- uh, New Line Cinema, they joined forces and they produced a film about a maniac who would kill teenagers in their dreams on a very low budget of 1.8 million dollars. And to the surprise of everyone, it became a quite a bit of a success, and it, uh, it raked in over 25 million dollars, putting the director on the upper trajectory and the production company on the map. Craven would leave the Freddy Krueger character behind in pursuit of other film projects, but New Line was just getting started. So they quickly rushed a sequel into production, which you can hear about in uh, our archives. The Freddy's Revenge episode, one of our personal favorites. Yeah, probably one of my favorites. Uh, Check that out on JuicyKrueger.com. Freddy's Revenge is released to the masses, and it rakes in an even higher box office return. But... It just doesn't live up to the expectations of the fan base, its homoerotic undertones, and its quote-unquote deviations from the rules of the first film. Well, Wes Craven was inevitable to be drafted back into the fold to pen the third entry. Wes Craven would go on to collaborate with writer Bruce Wagner and the story, they would write a draft for the script that would be heavily inspired by Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and some real-life mental health facilities at the time. I say that One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, one of my all-time favorite films. It's
3: one of the two uh, movies that I've ever seen that is, hands down, better than the book, That and Fight Club. Uh, Wes Craven had this to say about his inspiration.
1: I wanted to take it up to the next level. I felt like if I'm going to do another one, I want it to be somehow better. I came up with the idea, and then Bruce Wagner and I wrote a really interesting first draft. At the time, there was... Kind of movement of such places that were being even advertised on television. Send us your troubled children and we'll make them okay. And essentially, they were like prisons or insane asylums. <coughs> so the first major departure this film has is it moves the setting from the suburbs into Weston Hills, this you know, psychiatric hospital. Do you think this is a positive change? And definitely, how big a risk do you think this was to take the series? It
3: was a pretty big risk because before it was high school and then at home alone, isolated. This environment puts the kids together 24-7. They all know what they're going through. None of the authority figures, you know, they're all, it's mass delusion. You're wanting to fuck too much. Your parents did drugs all these things but the kids themselves who are stuck together they know the, what's going on.
1: I think the beneficial thing for keeping the story going in specifically Dream Warriors is because they all already know about Freddy. Yes. So there is not that that need for one character to convince another character exactly. of his existence. Now, Dr. Gordon is not really on board for that and the other staff members, but they have Nancy come in later, and she serves as that intermediate to be able to get everybody on board. But there isn't that like, oh, our friend is dead, now we got to take things seriously, but I don't know if it's a dream
3: uh, yeah. fucking demon killing off everybody. We're kind of dropped in media res where it's already happening. There's already an epidemic of suicide in the town, and these are the kids that just got caught in the attempt. I'm using air quotes on an audio medium, but
0: the uh the, the whole
1: subject matter is really dark too like going back to what he said about the troubled kids and you know we'll make them okay by putting them you know in crazy house i mean yeah. uh this is mental health has really come into light over the past you know 20 years has been taken a lot more seriously yes. and you know with now with the anti bullying programs and you know that some people are just wired differently uh, this is sort of groundbreaking in a lot of ways, and like kind of focusing in on the troubles of teens and how hard it is to be a teenager. Aside from the fact that there's a, a dream warrior, you know, or dream, a dream demon kind of trying to chop, you know, chop everybody up in their in their dreams. I, I just think that's a it's kind of a an adventurous uh, viewpoint to take, um, prophetic in, in some some regard of how Absolutely. how. For, the forefront that psychiatric care will become in our But this life is the eighties,
3: so in real life they just all would have been molested.
1: P- probably unfortunately. I mean there's there's
3: the whole thing with the one night orderly had, trying to get sex from the re- recovered junkie. But in in real life all of them just molested all the time. Thankfully it's a movie so we don't have to deal with that kind of harsh shit. <sighs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. But you gotta think like uh the
1: the separation from the The original drafts of the story, uh, penned by Bruce Wagner and Wes Craven, do you think like those more of those kind of elements played into that, and maybe the Frank Darabont, um, and uh, Chuck Russell version maybe stripped a lot of the elements out.
3: Well, as I was talking about before, I I found a summation on like a message board of Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner's original first draft script, and I think it would have been. They, in that version of the movie, Weston Hills would have been a more unpleasant place, but I don't think they would have relied heavily on, like... It probably just would have been also in that movie, one orderly trying to get laid with, like, you know, one chick, one time. I don't think it would have made that big of a difference, but I think the overall tone and aesthetic would have been more oppressive and dark. I, there's a part of me that kind of likes
1: that, because it on top of the fact that, like... That their nighttime, like their dreams, are haunted. Their daytimes they're, 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 haunted too. Yeah, yeah. there's just a it's a, a situation you can't like get out of. You know, you're awake, you're asleep, you're fucked either way. Um, the draft, although promising, wasn't exactly what New Line was looking for. Um, Sarah Reiser uh, had this to say: "There were so many rules, and none of them were followed. Everybody could do." everything, so it was just like the ki- kitchen sink approach. Throw it all in, and they really, elemental scary things in number one, that it worked so well, it felt like, I'm just gonna throw a bunch of sh- shit in. Uh, Executive Sarah Reiser uh, shared s- uh, similar sentiments. Uh, actually, I think I f- that first yeah. quote was, uh, that's from Rachel Talley. I read ahead of myself. The second one comes from Sarah Reiser. She shared similar sentiments, and she had this to say, it didn't quite work, it was very ambitious script, Uh, but it didn't have a lot of the human vulnerabilities and the characteristics we wanted. We were in the process of rewriting the script with Wes, and our producers at the time had met with some young, smart, and -and up-and-coming writers, Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell, and they said, please hear their pitch. They had a great pitch. We think this is the best way to go. So, enter three-time Oscar nominee Frank Darabont, who would go on to be one of the most successful writer-directors in Hollywood. His work includes Shawshank Redemption, uh, the Green Mile, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, Dream Warriors was Frank's first writing credit. Uh, his rewrite, along with the input from director Chuck Russell, would put more of a comedic spin on the script, also kind of expanding the fun things you can do in the dream world. So this is the one of the more contentious uh, aspects. Uh, you have four people credited as writer of this film. You got Bruce Wagner, you got Wes Craven, Frank Darabont, and Chuck Russell. Who do you think should get credit for writing Dream Warriors? As
3: I said before, this is a this is a movie that was kind of written by committee, but it just so happened the committee was stacked with talent. I compare compare it to like the development of Alice in Chains in the nineties. They were a grunge band, boy band, put together by producers that just happened to be the best grunge band of the nineties. Yes, better than Nirvana. Come at me. Oh, uh, fuck,
1: I'm not going to argue that. No, I'm talking funny. to the
3: listeners. But um, at least Link's Daily died of a drug overdose, not suicide.
0: <laughs> all right, we won't go. Okay. But, um, but no,
3: I think they all deserve credit. But in the end, it was Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont that made it the commercially viable and more broad-reaching movie than it, that it became to be. Is this... The because this happens a lot more in Hollywood
1: than I think we realize. Uh, I know that the DC films, uh, the ones that a lot of people don't like, were sort of like written by committee. Yeah, is this the exception to the rule? Absolutely. Where, where like for whatever reason, all the you know everything just kind of
3: fit into place. Well, I'll say this: this was an instance where all the parts were of quality material. And it was pairing and shaping of quality parts, and not just people that didn't give a shit about. David S. Goyer famously said, "You have Batman and Superman fight when you're ran out of ideas," and then he wrote Batman v Superman. Yeah, fuck you, David Goyer. But I'm just saying, like in this case, everybody who wrote a draft or uh, contributed contributed cared about the project so it was just a matter of good material
1: whoever's responsible you can't deny that the puzzle pieces they just perfectly fall into place and a cinematic magic just happens before your eyes dream warriors is a film that has a lasting legacy and i think it all starts with the synopsis so if you'd be so kind fat tony to read it for our listening audience
3: Born the bastard son of a hundred maniacs, demented killer Freddy Krueger is back for fresh victims in this hallucinatory shocker co-written by original creator Wes Craven. The last of the Elm Street kids are now at a psychiatric ward where Freddy haunts their dreams with unspeakable horrors. Their only hope is dream research and fellow survivor Nancy Thompson, Heather Langenkamp, who helps them battle the supernatural psycho on his own hellish turf. Starring Patricia Arquette of *Ed Wood* and *True Romance*, and Academy Award nominee Lawrence Forever, Larry Fishburne in *My Heart* from *The Matrix*, <laughs> directed by Chuck Russell, *The Mask* and *Eraser*, *Dream Warriors* is both horrific and, and is, is both a his, horrific and hysterical trip, says the L.A. Herald Examiner. Uh,
1: pretty apt description that lays the foundation, and obviously we're. Big fans for all the contributing people. You know, Wes yeah. Craven, Frank Darabont. But you can't talk about Dream Warriors and without talking about the man who directed it. And that being Chuck Russell, who also directed a film that I hold in high regard. That being the remake of The Blob. Oh,
3: fuck yeah. Like, I think somehow it got forgotten in the 80s, but it should hold... Not equal to or greater than, but up there with John Carpenter's The Thing.
1: The the special effects are absolutely terrific. Steve Johnson, you know, oh, hitting home yeah. runs left and right. Some of the optical effects are, are a little less to be desired, but it's a really smart film. I, I invite all of you out there, if you maybe haven't seen it or have, you know, for whatever reason, not fond memories of it, go check it out. I think you might enjoy it. He also did The Mask, which was a phenomenon in the 1990s. Oh, and yeah. Really, this was the, the the year of Jim Carrey. You dumb and dumber, yeah. The Mask, and he just was off to the races. Uh, big fan of the the source material, but they, they distilled it down into a more Kid universally kin friendly kind of thing. And uh, Cameron Diaz, hi, damn, how does <laughs> she ever look in did a movie? How she ever look? He also directed uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Eraser,
3: Fuck yeah. Like, I mean, it's a good movie.
1: Do you do you know that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in this little movie, I don't know if you're familiar with it, called Twins? I,
3: I think I may have heard of hey. it. Who, who happened to direct that his movie? His
1: name was Ivan Reitman, and he also directed Ghostbusters. You just got busted, and there are going to be a couple more of these peppered through the episode, so get ready for them. Listen, at the time of his hiring, Chuck had never stepped into the director's chair. Joseph Rubin, who uh, was the studio's first choice, he had directed a similarly themed dreamscape film in 1984. Movie fucked
3: me up with the little Cobra Monster Man nightmare. Uh, for whatever reason, he was forced
1: out, uh, mainly because he was going to be directing 1987's The Stepfather. Really, really great film. <laughs> uh I am
3: a stepfather, so I need my kids to know who am I today. (laughs) Uh, Starring Terry O'Quinn
1: and Jill Sholin, who was uh, the star of the film I highlighted last month with Popcorn. Uh, He insisted uh, that his uh, Dreamscape co-writer, Chuck Russell, would be a better fit for the uh, film. Now, it took some convincing, (laughs) uh, but after hearing his and Frank Darabont's pitch for the Nightmare sequel... Well, he was given the reins to the franchise. Uh, New Line producer Rachel Talley had this to say about his and Chuck's hiring, or his and um, Frank's hiring. When I convinced Bob and Sarah that Chuck was the guy, he was going to be able to write a really good script for it. I give Chuck complete credit for what happened in the script. He and Frank Darabont. Chuck came in with a massive passion, but what came out of it was how difficult it was to work with Chuck. Now, there's an old saying in Hollywood that the more difficult the shoot is, the better the film will turn out. And Chuck accomplishes this on two fronts. The first was him butting heads with New Line over the direction of the Nightmare series and the Freddy character. Chuck had this to say about the direction he took Dream Warriors in. Let's make the third more fun. Let's take the boundaries of imagination a little further with the whole series. Uh, the original script for Nightmare Three was darker and actually profane. I think Wes was trying to make it eat into a more horrific place, and I was very much more interested in the imaginative elements to the piece. There were very they were very touchy about the imagery of Freddy and where I took it, and I was trying, frankly, to loosen them up. You know, take it to a crazier place and move it further, or there'd be no point. So, comedic elements aside, do you think? that this was a good idea to sort of open up the Nightmare world and make it a little more
3: fun. Two, I was just thinking about this, uh, just to me out while you were reading that. Had they went with a more profane, dark, evil part three, that would have been the last one. It would have made its money back, and that probably was it. Because part two being some negative and dark, uh, part 3, Going Negative and Dark, to make this the massive commercial success it was and the mas- massive cultural impact that it was, opening it up to a wider audience. This movie doesn't try not to be scary, because I remember watching it, I was scared to shit out of me as a little kid, and you know, but it doesn't try to be like relentlessly horrifying. It tries to, ooh, uh, we're spooky, as
2: opposed to like, oh my God, I'm going to kill you!
3: Um, so yeah, Chuck Russell's idea of loosening things up, giving it a broader appeal, making it a teenage popcorn movie—you want to go make out during—and not like something that traumatized you. See, once that was the absolute smartest as, move.
1: As a lifelong comic book fan, I, I I feel like that this is this is almost like a a superhero movie because in the dream world. Your protagonists are gifted these dream warrior abilities. That's a, something that I mean they touch on it a little bit in part four, but it, it's not it's not it's as only pervasive. With Alice.
3: Like it's like everything well, ended and with the, Alice karate
1: karate invisible karate
3: 5. Oh yeah, I but that, He's one of the newer kids that still had a power, but no, this one everybody had their own thing. It was more uh, distinct. Uh, it it.
1: And I know that, like the the contemporary movie, which is a superhero film, that being the New Mutants, which was, you know, unfortunately a bomb, but it definitely draws heavily from the aesthetic of Dream Warriors, which is funny because Dream Warriors kind of draws from the aesthetic of of uh, a comic horror book. movie X Men. In a lot of ways, it is. Um, do you think that uh, is a
3: positive for the yeah, film? Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's it's something that mainstream audiences can latch on to a little more. It gives, you know, instead of just the protagonist doing something else to fight against him again until, you know, it gives every, what it does is it gives every one of the kids who learn about this, you think they have a chance. Even if they get killed immediately, they have a chance that you can root for them more instead of just knowing in your heart they're they're
1: They're they're just there to be dispensed with. Yes. Um, One of the new additions to the Nightmare canon is Freddy's backstory, and we're going to touch on that a little later in the retrospective with a rants recreation, but Dream Warrior stands out from the previous films by leaning into some religious elements. It's old school, it's tried and true horror trope, one that we've discussed in detail in the Exorcist episode that we did, find that out on JuicyCritter.com in the archive. Do you think that rooting the Freddy character in Catholic dogma Is a positive or a negative?
3: I think overall it's a slight positive because, again, in horror movie shorthand, the audiences know what to expect. It's like when you get, okay, well, there's a cross. He's evil. There's holy water. And, again, as you um, said, I'll let you bring that up. But you know it's it's good shorthand for the general audience. Well, I mean, film
1: is a visual medium, and you sometimes have to take shorthand, and yeah. those are things that you identify from you know previous media. For me personally, um, even though like I I completely understand why they did it, it almost makes Freddy less scary to me because it it clearly marks that there is there is there is good, there is evil. There's you know, there's an afterlife and. And even though the implication that you when know, Freddy, you know, kills these kids, he's absorbing their souls into sort of like a, you know, a, a perhaps, perhaps a fate worse than hell. Yeah. I mean, I'm not exactly sure, but you know, this purgatory or to be in his chest of souls, I don't know. To me that makes it a little less scary when it's just this thing that you can't explain. Uh, like uh, Michael Myers is a perfect example. The more you know about Michael Myers, the less scary he is. Um Part 6, you know, which has two wildly different cuts, and the, the more you, like, try to explain why he can do what he does, it makes him less scary, and even in the Nightmare series, Freddy's dead, you know, dream demons come to him, like, we want to give you power, and, it, and to me, that makes him less scary. When you can't explain why Freddy is, or what can stop him, I don't know, it makes him more of an, like a, an oppressive force that can't be reckoned with. Now, Because of these things that were implemented by Chuck Russell, you get a really, really satisfying ending. So for that reason alone, I'm going to give it a pass, and we'll talk about that as we continue on. But speaking of Chuck Russell, he had to say this about his justification for introducing the religious elements. I wanted to bring in these kind of uh, classic Christian values. We kill Freddy with a cross. I mean, this is old school vampire stuff. Now, I had not considered this previous to do in my research, but Freddy is kind of a vampire. Yeah, he he sucks your soul. Yeah, Rather than feeding off blood, he feeds off your your life force.
3: He's keeping himself afloat by, you know, almost the misery of others. And even when they take the series in kind of a different direction, he still feeds off fear. So, I mean, even in any iteration, he is a vampire-like presence. And even... (sighs) <sighs> Ooh, especially in Part 2 when it's more of a seductive will-they-won't-they they, trying yeah. to get... Like, that's very apt for Part 2, but it does apply pretty much across the board.
1: And I'm just putting this together in my head, and it's something that comes together in full swing in Wes Craven's New Nightmare because you get that Freddy silhouette that's hearkening back to Nosferatu. Yep. But even Freddy's look is somewhat evocative of Count Orlok. I mean, he doesn't have, like, wild, bushy eyebrows right. or anything, but... Um, bald and uh, you know, kind of witch-like in his in his look. Um, I just had a prophetic moment for myself. That was that was uh, oh, that's that's kind, of, kind of
3: cathartic, you know. I have one of those later on when he asked me a question <laughs> and I came up with the best answer ever on the spot, and you'll hear it later. But the second time,
1: uh, let's table the discussion for Freddie's death a little later in the episode, and let's move on to the second hurdle Chuck Russell had to deal with in the filming of this movie. That being his inexperience in dealing with actors. Um, Ken Sagums, who plays the role of Kincaid, had this to say about Chuck's directing style. He was getting a lot of frustration from the powers that be over him. There was a couple times for me that I think Chuck did not know how to speak to some actors. Um, When we get to Patricia Arquette, I'm going to highlight a specific instance where Chuck was a little bit out of his element in dealing with actors who have you know you have to sympathize with him a little bit because this was not only his first feature film but this was a an effects heavy film and just time is money and uh, i i have to sympathize with him even though you know i've never been in this position chuck had this to say about the filming conditions the budgets involved in the series that was another limitation but you know the things that bring out the best in you I think every filmmaker has to kind of rise to the occasion when you start a career on a limited budget. Now there's an old saying that necessity is the mother of invention. Having limitations forces you to approach things in a different way. And I think this is what was going on in this script. Not only him being new to the directing field, but also working on an incredibly tight budget, um, and I don't want to take it too far of a detour, but I think that James Cameron is the perfect example of when this style of filmmaking can benefit you. Let's talk about the first Terminator movie. Now, even if you can take a step back before that, he worked with Roger Corman. He did Corona yeah, 2. 2, which is, you know... Not right? a horrible movie, but... But it's a movie made for nothing, and it was a movie that was made better because he was so had so much ingenuity and moving forward to the terminator like a more skilled director or a more seasoned director could have made this movie but it would have been made for much more money exactly when you are forced to overcome hurdles you have to come up with new and exciting and uh, practical ways to do so and when you look at the Terminator, I mean, it's basically a horror movie.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, it's a it's a sci-fi slasher movie. It's it, he's Michael Myers and Jason. He's unstoppable and, killing force.
1: Uh, you mean you have uh, the the problem of the the T eight hundred exo or the endoskeleton, whatever it's called. Yeah. But they they just they made it. They just made a full size thing and they rod puppeted it and Stan Winston incredible stuff. But when you can throw twice the budget at that um, that would have been stop motion animated or you know, whatever the equivalent of CGI yeah. was at the time. Fast forward to a movie like Avatar which was, as I think was the most expensive movie ever made at that point. Yeah, May
3: still be. I'm not entirely sure. But of course everything looks amazing in that movie. they have unlimited budget to throw at it so they can do anything they want and they don't, they're not forced to innovate. Although, to give him props, his... His technology and innovation pushed what they could do with CG and 3D. I know you don't really care for it. I only think it's pretty good, and that's just a bear pretty good. But, I mean, you got to admit, for me, sometimes I'd forget I was watching a computer animated movie pretty much.
1: But my point in all this being is that great movies can be made if you throw a yeah. huge budget at them. But it very rarely results in like a groundbreaking, groundbreaking. Like like, okay, we can do this because of X, Y, and Z. The original Star Wars. Uh, George Lucas like shopped around the Star Wars script everywhere and no one wanted to make this movie. He's like, well we can't make this movie on a, a budget that will ever be returned and Fox took a you know, a shot with him. And then they got to the point where like, well, they had to shoot all these space battles and they had to invent new technology to be able to do it. Necessity is the mother of invention. Now to tie this all back in, this is what I think happened on this film. Because he was sort of out of his element and not a seasoned director, he was forced to think on the fly and... Outside of the box. Outside of the box. And because of him sort of on the the character stuff getting so far behind and he got to a point where oh fuck now I don't know what to do you're you're forced to have to now the first time we recorded uh, this we talked about the shot where they're in the hall full of mirrors yeah. that is something that a seasoned director would struggle with now, i just watched uh, wizard of uh, wizard of oz, the wizard of oz sequel made by disney called return to oz and that's another first-time director, and I was amazed at how many fucking shots in that movie in Mombi's uh, castle or whatever that this just wall-to-wall mirrors. That's not an easy thing to shoot, whatever stage director you are.
3: Now you want to spread because you have to keep your keep the shot out. They were doing that that scene, the hallway scene in Nightmare Three, almost up to the the day of the premiere, trying to figure out how to make it work. And it ended up being just projecting on Myanmar and doing like it's just simple camera tricks. That, given a million dollars more budget, they might have figured out another probably worse way to do it. It wouldn't have well, been, and, have been and now they would just CG, CG it. CG it, and sometimes that's not the worst thing
1: on earth. No, it's not. But uh, presented with a problem, they overcame it. And a film is collaborative yes. effort, so you can't place it all entirely on Chuck Russell. But he was smart enough to, to listen to people around him, and I'm sure they came to a consensus, like, this is what we need to do. And, uh, I mean, the director is more than just the guy who sets up the shot and says, do this, do that. They, coordinates. they they coordinates the entire production. So, for him to be able to take charge and put everything into place, that's an amazing thing, especially on your first film. Now, um... Weaving that all back uh, to Chuck Russell, if you had to divorce yourself from the knowing that the, this was a troubled production, would you have ever known this was a first-time director?
3: No, man. This movie fucking fits together like a Swiss watch. I mean, it just goes. From the, from the opening scene to the close, it is a well-oiled engine of 80s horror gold.
1: I absolutely agree, and rewatching this because I try and do as much research before I watch a movie and then I'll watch the movie because it gives me a different perspective on it but even knowing what I know and like I'm looking for cracks and there's none I mean, no. if they are there, they're they're so minor that it's not even worth mentioning. Like, some, there's some shots where, like, uh, Patricia Arquette's stunt double is not oh, very yeah. noticeable, but come on. That was just... Uh, That's going to happen. That, it's the 80s. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But, yeah, I would have never known this was his first film had I no. not known it. Um, Some of the cast have been very critical on the way they were directed, but it's more than evident that Chuck cared about the cast and the characters. He had this to say. "I, I wanted to do something about the bonding of kids at that age. I think the beauty of the whole Elm Street series is that there's something the kids know that their parents don't believe. It was a great horror riff on adolescence on the point in our lives where we realize the world is not such a nice place and maybe everything we've learned in school or by our parents have told us isn't exactly true
3: exactly drop out of school and run away from home kids <laughs> no no do needle drugs yeah. play dungeons
1: and dragons and make, and
3: make marionettes <laughs> exactly no i do believe that um Again, that's one of the geniuses of the script, of putting them all in the high school, is you don't have separate social lives. You mean Weston Hills? Weston, what did I say? High school. Yeah, rather than having them in high school, having them at Weston Hills, it takes away the distractions of the social life and everything. It's more concentrated bonding of teens in distress. Well,
1: taking all those elements into consideration, um, where do you rank... Nightmare 3 in the series. And let's let's just do the first four movies. Okay, I,
3: last time I included two more and he got, um, he hit me. He put a lit cigarette <laughs> out on me. He doesn't even smoke. No, I've thought about this and I'm going to, to cement my answer. Three, because it has the perfect balance of horror, tone, comedy, fun, acting, direction, effects. One, two, and four.
1: My my list is almost the same as yours. The, the wild card for me is four. And the reason that wild... or I'm sorry. The wild card for me is two.
0: Yeah. And
1: the reason it is, is because if I am in the right mood, that movie has more visceral effect on me than the other ones. I love part one, and I think... As far as like a creative film across the board, like it's it's hard to argue because it's yeah. the, the, the the seed in which the whole universe was grown from. But after reevaluation, part three is just it satisfies like every check on the list. But if I if I want a scary, like just dark, fucked up movie, I'm gonna put two a little above it. So I, I can't.
3: I almost have to disqualify my own argument because three is a better film. I mean, yeah, we know, and I understand. It's not how we're not doing objective. We're doing subjective. So it's how you feel your list is. But you rank but, your list. But, on your but title. here's the thing: like I
1: can, I can, I have to argue against my own list just because of because in the moment of when I am projecting or saying in this, your heart,
3: you know, part two is your favorite. Just say,
1: but. But watching back part three this past week, and I'm like, God damn it, this is a really great movie. So it depends on what mood I'm in. So it's sort of like a... You're you're like... It's a
3: shifting list. How my list used to be one or three on any given day, but after... And I watched one also this past week. I watched them not quite back to back. Three is my favorite.
1: Nightmare 3 is loved for a plethora of reasons but nightmare fans uh specifically of nightmare one may show favoritism towards the return of original final girl Mm. heather langenkamp as nancy thomas nancy thompson rather um so i'm gonna start to sound like a broken record here um But we're not going to do an extensive breakdown of Heather's acting resume. We're going to save that for when we finally do the original film. And it's coming. You know, just when it's going to come, I can't exactly tell you. Uh, Probably part one or part five is going to be next. It's inevitable. Yeah. Um, That being said, the character of Nancy returning in a more mentor role was in the cards from the very beginning. Heather had this to say about her return to Nancy. Wes Craven called me and asked if I would mind being included in his script he was writing for Nightmare 3. He gave me the basic idea of how she should come back in a psychologist for kids who are having these terrible nightmares.
2: Um,
1: Nancy has been or the character of Nancy, well actually know what, no, Heather uh, uh, Landkamp has been in three films, her character of Nancy has been in two or two and a half because she's She's kind of half Nancy in uh, West Craven's New Nightmare yeah. as well because it becomes a movie within a movie. But let's just uh, let's stick to okay. one and three. How important is Nancy's
3: character to the series? Nancy's character is the bedrock upon which it is all built. Her and Robert England in the original as the protagonist, the vulnerable teen, the everyday good girl next door who I just love so much. I love you. But uh like she she presents like the perfect um prototypical final girl for the series. In part three, she is the glue that gives those kids cohesion. Freddie, it's even in it's stated in the text of the film, he wants to separate them because they're weak separate. Like you could say that Kristen brings them together in the dream, but it's Nancy that brings them together at all to even think about teaming together. Providing the foundation of, of a group of kids you want to survive and that you root for, in the most cementing role in the movie or cementing movie in the franchise. Without her and without Robert England, there might have been a without her there might have been a part four, but you know it would have petered out. She cements it. She's super fucking important. Basically, when
1: when you look at the other the big four, um. Really, there's only a couple of like long-staying characters. There's Jamie Lee Curtis in the Halloween series, and Friday the 13th, like you're in the fourth movie before you get Tommy Jarvis, yeah. And you know, he has his trilogy, but a lot of people still kind of hold him in high regard, and um, but. Jamie Lee Curtis's importance to Halloween is—it's almost like every time the series hits a low, it's like, well, we got to pull, we got to get Jamie back, we got to get Jamie back. With the
3: exception, of Resurrection.
1: Uh, she she wanted out. That, that was contractual <laughs> obligation. Tell me off. But um, I feel like Nancy is kind of the same way because Freddie's dead comes out, and I mean, it was it ended with a pfft uh, instead of a bang, and they're like, well, what can we do? Well, Wes comes back. And Nancy comes back, or, and, or Heather
3: comes back, and fucking kills it.
1: And it's a, a for for a '90s movie that is '90s like,
3: meta horror too. Movie, and I know you specifically yeah. hate that shit.
1: Well, it, it does it does it well. Um, I just wish it didn't come out that in that decade. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think that like her character, and it is even just her character, just the actress herself is so entrenched that you. You need you need her looming presence uh, to make the movies um, have a little more weight to yeah. them. And she's, you know, kind of usurped, and other final girls take the place, but, I mean, Nancy's the original, and Nancy's the one that's always going to be kind of at the forefront.
3: Absolutely. You know,
1: one or number two, depending on how you want to argue about it. When the rewrites for Wes's script occurred, uh, quite a bit changed, but Nancy's inclusion was never... Uh, and it was never even discussed for removal. They just
3: removed her fully nude, hardcore lesbian sex (laughs) scene to our detriment.
1: We actually have a question uh, (laughs) from Teddy and Travis about such things, so let's table that discussion. (laughs) Um, Chuck Russell had this to say about bringing back the Nancy character. Bringing Nancy back was another hook I thought was great for the series. It took some convincing. She had other things going on in her life but she did a great job and the character became a leader of sorts of a new generation of Elm Street kids. Now, narratively, Heather's character in Dream Warriors serves a couple of really important purposes. Um, She fills in details and she's the exposition dump character. You need a point of reference character to explain to the other characters what the fuck is going on. So that could have been written really flat. For her, but I give them a lot of credit for giving a lot of humanity to her character, especially time back in that they bring John Saxon
3: back as well. And which her is big the, expedition dump scene in group therapy is also fucking amazing. Yeah, she she's she's great, and we I love her. We we absolutely
1: love her. I wish Heather Landcamp had had you know she she's a she's a scream queen in the sense that she was in these nightmare films, but like I feel like she She didn't
3: scream. She took it to them,
1: but but she could have been like. The yes. Jamie Lee Curtis of other genre, not genres, but other uh, franchises. I mean, I would have loved to have seen her in a you know, a fucking uh, sl- other slasher series. You know what I'm yes, saying? Like absolutely. She, she, no, we get why she didn't do it. Yeah, for for a career it's probably a good idea. But I, but from my heart, I wish I would have seen her do other things. Um. Robert England had this to say about Nancy's purpose in part three. You've got this great character of Heather as the binding element. Heather's the one that's been through it and can tell them what's going on. Nancy takes on this mentor role and she's not a teenager anymore. So she's, she's, you know, probably 25, 26, 27 years old at the time of this and uh, she still has the, the white streak in mm-hmm. her hair. Sexy rogue hair so streak. So fucking sexy. Um, but do you think that uh, her mentor role kind of overshadows uh, some of the... Especially when you take it into consider that Patricia Arquette is kind of the lead of the movie. See, but
3: the protagonist role in this film is kind of split three ways. Yeah, Patricia Arquette's Kristen... She's directly, she's in the shit. She's one of the teenagers he's gunning for. There's Nancy, who's the binding mentor who gathers together, and then you have the focus also taken away to Dr. Gordon, who we're going to talk about later, but like, there's not one protagonist in this movie. There's really three. And really, most of the attention in the protagonist, let's move forward to actively, proactively do something, is two of the Nancy and Dr. Gordon.
1: That, that's I agree with that, uh, and it would have been really easy for this character to be written really badly. Oh yeah, just just simply there to to give like this is what's going on, but and whether that's just it's a script or if it's just her likability, she's absolutely terrific. She cares about these kids. You feel that um, Nancy's character has grown uh, so much, but the nightmare universe uh, with the inclusion of Dream Warrior abilities has you know grown as well. Should Nancy have had a Dream Warrior ability?
3: This is the answer I was so proud of uh, coming off the flight. No, because she is now an adult. Like, she's obviously past, like, 26. Her brain has stopped functioning. Or not functioning. <laughs> her, brain stopped, her brain stopped developing. She is locked into who she is. Teenagers, all of adolescence is a super tumultuous time. You're, you're never the same person from one day to the next. And that's what gives them their powers. They can access that. Nancy has, she you know, she can't go back to Neverland. She's grown up.
1: Well, that's the perfect parallel. Um, you know, you're 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 young and and things are magical, but then you become an adult and it reality smacks you in the face. And fucking you're about place. to turn
3: forty in three days, two and a half days now.
0: Oh. We're, well, we're, we're, we're going to drink so much. We're going to drink,
3: pain. and we are finally, in honor of my 40th birthday, going to watch the remake of Evil Dead. I Hell
0: got... has frozen <laughs> over! They
3: are serving snow cones.
0: Um,
1: The script for Dream Warriors does a great job of <coughs> balancing the older elements with Nancy and the newer elements with the Dream Warriors uh, abilities, and et cetera. But it seems like every 15 minutes or so there's like something fresh added to keep the story moving. One of these elements is hypnocil, which is the experimental dream-suppressing drug. And it's implied that Nancy is using this medication as a preventative measure to kind of deal with her trauma from part one. If this is the
3: case, how is Kristen able to bring Nancy into the dream world. Kristen's powers are so strong that Nancy's not asleep when she's pulled in. She's wide awake. And she falls in her fucking chair. Yeah, she disappears into the chair. So that's just like uh, Kristen is kind of the Professor X or the Jean Grey doesn't know her own power kind of X-Men Nightmare Warrior. You know, she pulls in like somebody. So, no.
1: Yeah, I, I I've Never had a problem with this until I watched it back this week, and you're, you're trying to watch it with a critical eye. But what you say makes a lot of sense. Uh, she's, uh, I mean, Kristen inevitably becomes the Dream Master, and she passes her power, you know, off in, to Alice to Alice in in uh, part four. But I I feel like that they could have maybe narratively have punched this up a little bit to make it make a little more sense. Because if you're going to introduce the Hypnosil, you need to be able to explain why
3: someone would. They could have just cut out Nancy taking it because the Hypnosil is a good MacGuffin to try to be a stopgap measure to save the kids. Oh, we got to get it. But that's how it gets introduced is that maybe she just doesn't take it all the time.
1: You no, know, she's, she's forgetful so, Yeah, in her old age. In her old age of
3: mid-twenties.
1: <laughs> um, not to get too far off topic, and you know I'm a big defender of Freddy's Revenge, but I know it's the black sheep of the series. But there's a lot of dialogue in Dream Warriors that some fans believe is a reference to Mark Patton's character, Jesse. Dr. Gordon, who we're going to talk about in our, in our next segment, remarks about a former patient cutting off his own eyelids with a razor to prevent himself from going to sleep. So, it's a two-part question. Do you think this is a sort of veiled reference to Jesse? Um, And two, would the film have benefited from him being one of the kids who ends up being the Dream Warriors?
3: Uh, No, I don't believe it's Jesse. As I said, in Nightmare True 2, he tried something different. He chose a teenager outside of his normal killing pool, dream killing pool of the children of his murderers, to get an outsider. In part three, it's very obviously that he's you know just gone back to dream murder and getting people, you know that he has access to. I think Jesse maybe only had access because he was in the house and read the diary of Nancy, which made no fucking sense. But anyway, he opened his mind to him. So I don't believe it is, but it. All the Dream Warriors are the last of the survivors of the Elm
1: Street Kids, and in that regard, I. I disagree with it being Jesse. But at the same time, because you bring back Nancy from the first movie, brilliantly, by the way, I feel like leaving Jesse as kind of this like forgotten chapter is is a is just it's insulting. Now I understand why they didn't do it. Part two is is the black sheep, but in regards to the my own headcanon, the uh, Doctor Gordon oh. saying this—that's Jesse. Yes, yes. In
3: in your head cannon, it can be. And you know what? I'm going to line my head cannon up right because this person gets to live. They don't have eyelids anymore, <laughs> but they do survive. They get the fuck out of there. And it's hard to go to sleep when you don't have any eyelids. And they're no longer in Spring uh, Springwood. So. Because as as laid out in Freddie's dad, he stuck to those borders.
1: Oh, oh! I'm sorry, though. There isn't every townhouse in Elm Street, but not until he gets out <laughs> in his daughter's brain. So, Lisa Zane,
0: sister uh, of Billy Zane, hell, Billy Zane. We didn't
1: talk about Billy Zane this time no, <laughs> in our Titanic, we, but program. we love him. We do, we do. Um, oh man. Um. I, for me, it would have been nice to have Jesse in part three to tie everything together, but I absolutely understand why they didn't do it. So, But I think the veiled reference, to me, that's Jesse. Yes. Now, we'll discuss Nancy's death uh, when we get to our victims, but first we have to talk about our male lead, who we just alluded to, uh, Craig Wasson as Dr. Neil Gordon. He's been a character actor for several years. He was in Brian De Palma's Body Double, terrific film. He was also in the excellent Haunted House film,
3: Ghost Story. Has one of my favorite jump scares where they're in a bathtub and he's like rubbing her boob with his foot and (laughs) then she goes under and then just pops up screaming. Great
1: stuff. Love it. Uh, He was also in Malcolm X as well as, uh, you know, just continual work in several television series. Now, right off the bat, i got to say that I have spent half of my life thinking that Craig Watson was actually Bill Maher. Uh, the reason I thought this, aside from the obvious, them being sort of dead ringers for one another, Bill Maher was also in a horror movie around the same time, one of my, my favorites, uh, House 2, The Second Story.
3: Yeah, I forgot that he was in that, but, yep.
1: Now, um, he, to this day, gets recognized incorrectly as Bill Mart. So, taking a trip back in the 1987 or you know, late 80s and in the 90s, do you think that him looking like Bill Maher helped or
3: hurt his career? I don't think it had much of an impression in the 80s, into the early 90s, because they were both probably unequal, if not him, slightly more successful. Then when Bill Maher started hitting it a little bit harder, and you know, more success and stand up. In the early 90s to now, it's definitely hurt his career.
0: Well,
1: the the parallel being here, you know, we're both big fans of Tom Matthews from Friday 13th, Part 6 and Return of the Living Dead 1 and 2. His career kind of hit a wall because he would go to casting agents. And they're like, weren't you an American Ninja? And he was like, no, because he was constantly mistaken for Michael Dunikoff. So his career was derailed by association. So if anything, you could probably make the argument that uh, Bill Maher would probably be more negatively affected by looking like Craig Wasson. You know, like, you were Nightmare on Elm Street 3, fuck you.
3: You know, We're not going to let you host uh, Politically Incorrect. Oh, Bill Murray is kind of a prick, though. He's hilarious.
1: He is is hilarious, but he is a very smug prick. You'll probably get along with him really well.
3: I don't like militant asshole atheists as much as I don't like fundamentalist Christians, so probably not.
1: I don't know. He was in house too. Me I mean, I'd sense. be like, "Oh my god,
3: you are in house too!" <laughs> I love Jesus, and I'd spit on him and beat his ass. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh man, the character of Doctor Gordon is unfortunately kind of a footnote in the Nightmare series, uh, despite an excellent performance from. Brandon. Oh yeah, so, this yeah, is he's... like I
3: said, the best acted of all of the Nightmare movies. Hard,
1: hard to argue. Um, my question being, do you think Doctor Gordon should have returned to the series at some point?
3: Uh, No, because this was set in a hospital. The other two subsequent, three subsequent really, you could have maybe brought him back and Freddie's dead.
1: No, he's he's good that he wasn't. It's good. good that
3: he wasn't. But I think the only thing that would have made sense is maybe having him uh, was it Laurie's dad in Freddy versus Jason because that does revolve back to Weston Hills. Well, it's other funny, than that, he shouldn't be hanging out with high schoolers. It's
1: funny that you bring that up. Now, was, I don't believe he was considered to be Laurie's father, but the character of Doctor Gordon was in one of the thousand drafts of Freddy versus Jason, which I mean, which was done by you know twenty different people. There, there was yeah. at one point he was considered. And I think that would have been cool. And I, I like your idea about him being Laurie's father. There could have been some nice connective threads right there. Yeah. But at that point, do you think that, like, other than, like, Die Hard fans,
3: that people would have even, like... No, cared? but it would have been a nice drop-in for Die Hard fans. There's not a lot of those in that movie.
1: Most slasher films focus on younger teenage characters, but Dream Warriors bucks this trend by having several characters that are older, specifically Nancy and Dr. Gordon. Is this the exception to the rule, or should there be more older protagonists in slasher films? I think
3: this is the exception that proves the rule, although I know the example you're about to pull out because we're sitting under it. But in this, it gives, you know, things are always higher stakes when it's younger victims. Like It 1 versus It 2. They're kids in the first one. They are more vulnerable. They're powerless in their environment. And you know they're up against evil, whereas later on the adults, you know, there are kids killed in that movie, but they're not the protagonists. Not to mention the fuck.
1: fact that in part two they get, they just should have fucking stayed
3: home. Well, that they would have eventually killed themselves, as it was alluded. It would have Stan was a bitch. Stan was a bitch. But he always was a bitch. A crooked-faced lady was his fear. (laughs) Oh, I don't like asymmetry in women, you dick. So,
1: going back to the Halloween series, um, Halloween 2018, and coming up later in this year, we'll have Halloween Kills. Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, not a spring chicken anymore, but she's invaluable resource. So, it's proven that having an older uh, protagonist can be a positive. But I think the thing that this movie does is that it balances... Older cast members and younger cast members. Because the other uh, example I can say is uh, what we're sitting right under, and that being Jason Goes to Hell. And that has an older cast than normal yeah.
3: Friday the 13th films. you more got it's three those college-age students that go fuck, show their titties, and get killed. But for the most part, it's adults. But, oh, I just thought of this. The ultimate wannabe victim of this whole of that whole movie is a baby, and you do not get more vulnerable than a baby. There's no babies. You know,
1: I didn't even think about that. I just
3: clicked in my head. I mean, yes, he's he's killing adults, but he's going after a baby.
0: I eat the a... baby. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Indeed.
0: Well,
1: I I'm listening I could I mean, listen, spend an entire episode trying to defend Jason Goes to Hell. Love it. But it doesn't it it's doesn't hit the, the mark that Nightmare Three does yes. both critically, commercially, and, and everything in between. The thing that is great about this movie is that it balances older characters and mentor roles, but it also has the young characters to be you know the fresh meat. Yeah, and they're they're fleshed out. That's that's this, the other thing. It's just the script they're written in a way that, that written, makes care about Best them.
3: acted of the entire series. You know, it's the most cohesive like cast. Meshing. It's the best group that ever was in all the groups. Speaking
1: of meshing, one of the things I really appreciate about Dream Warriors is that they don't couple Nancy and Dr. Gordon. Uh, There's some light flirting between the two, but the focus of the film doesn't shift to like a forced love story. No. However, just like in every subgenre of film, there is a subsect of people who really wish that this had been a bigger part of the film. Should there have been a relationship, uh, love, sexual, or everything in between, between Dr. Gordon and Nancy?
3: No, and I'm glad there wasn't. Like, let's get this straight right off the bat. Dr. Gordon's ultimate goal was to get his dick wet. I mean, that's there's no denying that, but he cared more about the kids than his immediate need to, like, pump some seed into Nancy. So it would have happened, but I'm glad that it didn't. And, you know, you didn't need to have... There's enough on the line as it is... You didn't need to complicate it, and you know it is refreshing. All joking aside, to have like a working peer to peer professional pl- a platonic, relationship, a platonic relationship. relationship.
1: No, you're right, and I, I could see a a more what am I trying to say? A more uh, mainstream approach of this to include a love story to raise their stakes between but i'm glad that they don't do that because that would have overshadowed the more important elements of
3: them trying to help the kids
1: yeah so i'm really really glad that they didn't do but he was gonna try to hit that later. oh no no he he's seeking that dick to that puss 100 (laughs) exactly Uh, I love the third act of this film. Um, it's sort of being fought on two fronts. You got Nancy and the Dream Warriors confronting Freddy in the Dream World, but you also have Doctor Gordon and Lieutenant Thompson, the father, uh, the
3: disgraced father, disgraced. Of, um, security guard of
1: Nancy, uh, on a mission to retrieve Freddy's bones. And we're going to talk about how we find out this information yes. in a rants recreation coming up in just a few minutes. But they wanted to lay Freddy's bones to rest for once and all. So let's talk about the church scene, and I and I I have a, a reason as to why I believe this isn't the last time we see Freddy. So, you got uh, this side side mission between uh, 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 Doctor Gordon. Gordon and um, Lieutenant Thompson, and they stop and they're like they pull a the car up next to a church. He grabs the flask from Lieutenant Thompson, who's become like a horrible disgraced. Uh, Drunk night security guard. Yeah, because he got kicked off the force because you know his wife went nuts and his his daughter didn't far behind and all the all the fucking killing going on in Elm Street. So he pours out his flask and he goes into this this church to get holy water and to get a cross. So he fills up the flask with you know remnants of booze in there. Uh, with full holy water. But then he also gets caught by a priest stealing a cross. So I love this scene because this is uh as close to a montage as you kind of get in the movie, but it has that kind of feel like yeah. that, that quick intercut kind of thing. But. I'm going to postulate is the reason why Freddy returns in part four is that he wasn't truly consecrated
3: in his grave because he stole that cross. He didn't bring it back. And he lied to the priest saying, I just need to borrow this, knowing he was going to bury it. So it's going to take
1: him going back and, and digging that cross up and taking it back
3: to that priest. Every child to die from part four on is directly Dr. Neil Gordon's fault.
1: And that's why we don't see him in any of the sequels. He's
3: ridden with guilt, and he like he fucking
1: him. he uh, he Judas himself.
3: He did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, for the record, I, I love this stretch of the movie. The junkyard scene is so fucking awesome. However, I do have one big gripe with this, and it's not with the film. I want to state this: I love this scene, but it's because people give part two shit for breaking the rules when they so blatantly disregard Part 3 breaking the rules, and we'll, we'll save the, uh, the Ray Harryhausen uh, stop-motion animated Freddy Bones uh, to discussion a little later, but specifically the cars in the junkyard, they come alive when they're trying to, you know, bury Freddy. Why is it that this is acceptable, but the things that happen in part two are breaking the rules because the
3: people that bitch about that are, you know, have deals with their own sexuality and it's all the gayness of part two that put them off or they're nitpicky little assholes. And, or honestly, and this is the non joke answer that I feel part three is a more objectively cohesive, solid movie that it's so good by that point. You don't even care. You think oh you're shit in, it's something new to get excited about.
1: You're so invested in the forward motion of the film yeah. that these little inconsistencies don't bother you where part 2 is a much slower film like it, it's sort of like walking up a staircase that's a it's slowly building tension where part 3 is like once you get going it's just it's kind of like you know you're you just keep going through the rest of the movie that's it's got right. a, it's got forward momentum. So I think it's bullshit. Those of you out there who hate part two, um, check your privilege. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but try and try and open yourself up. If you watch part two and put it in terms that like sh- silly shit happens in all these movies and just yes. disregard it and enjoy it for what it is, part two's not breaking the rules any more than part three is breaking the rules of part two. So, fuck you. I love this, so it doesn't bother yes. me, but... People
3: nitp- People
1: nitpicking part two and being fine with this—that bothers me. Um, we'll talk about that Ray Harryhausen shit a little later on with uh, the Freddie Bones. Um, but first, um, we got to figure out and take a step back to how we found how Doctor Gordon finds out of how to take out Freddie. Um, I think it's time that you and I took center stage. In the role of Dr. Neil Gordon and reading the set directions, we have the master thespian, the great Fat Tony, and I, your gracious host, Brandon A. Lane, will be reading the part of the mysterious Sister Mary. That's right, it's time for a Rance Recreation. I'm so looking forward to this, <coughs> me, my me, thespian
3: self. me, 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 me. The arsonist has oddly shaped feet. The human torch was denied a bank loan. In a dreamlike daze, Dr. Gordon pursues Sister Helena through the dust, caked, and abandoned wing of the House of Worship. Hello, Sister? This is where it began. This wing's been closed for years. What was this place?
1: Purgatory. Fashioned by the hands of men. Twisted, lonely souls. The worst of the criminally insane were locked up in here like animals. This whole facility was shut down in the forties, wasn't it? Some sort of scandal? A young girl on the staff was accidentally locked in here over the holidays. The inmates kept her hidden for days. She was raped hundreds of times. When they found her, she was barely alive. And with child. Bum, bum, bum. That girl was Amanda Kruger!
3: Freddy? Oh, I stepped on your line. Her child?
1: Freddy? (laughs) The, The bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Some say... He was murdered, though no... nobody was ever found. You said something before about laying him to rest. You must find the remains and bury him in hallowed ground. Hallowed ground? Sister, like a, like a
3: sweet cherry asshole?
0: <laughs> Sorry.
1: If your only faith is science, Doctor, it may be you that's laid to rest.
3: Wait, Sister! Dr. Gordon's effort to catch Sister Helena are fruitless as she uh, departs as abruptly as she entered. So,
1: we'll jump ahead a little bit. The revelation of this scene being that we find out that Sister Helena is a ghost! And the the ghost none other than of Amanda Kruger herself, the mother of Freddy Kruger. Now, her character doesn't really come back into play until Part 4, five, which I actually think is kind of a missed opportunity of part four, um, having maybe yeah. a spiritual kind of...
3: Connected s- to you. Like, the,
1: if Freddy's the demon on your shoulder, maybe Sister
3: Helena is the, the angel. They could have had her pop up in a couple of dreams, but since they didn't, I do like that they at least waited till Alice had graduated high school before she found out she was pregnant and didn't, wasn't like on 16 and pregnant. So bringing the mom issue back in part five with the much hotter younger Amanda Kruger, <laughs> she, is a, she,
1: she, is a little, she is a little
3: she is a little she's a little more seasoned in part three that's yeah. for sure but you know had she not been a fucking Catholic and so worried about religion she could have had an abortion. <laughs> But all those kids' deaths are her <laughs> fault. Never mind. I apologize to Doctor Gordon. <laughs> one of the many, her body, her choice.
1: One of the many great things that Dream Warriors accomplishes is that it brings back familiar faces, but also introduces new characters that are just as loved. And chief among them is our new heroine that just happened to go from this film into having a career in Hollywood and become an Academy Award winner. We have Patricia Arquette as Kristen Parker. Now, you've probably seen her in a menagerie of films from True Romance. She was also in a film called Ed Wood with Bill Murray, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. She was in David Lynch's Lost Highway. Mm, plays a couple, That's right. and She also plays a couple different roles in there. Uh she's probably best remembered in the mainstream as uh her character in 130 episodes of the TV series Medium. Um that's uh ghost porn for uh for middle-aged yeah, wives. I
3: I've, I've never for ghost psychics I always preferred what was the other one with Jennifer Love Hewitt because she shows more cleavage. Oh
1: fuck, I don't know. All those this shows one of those. all those shows just I never watched
3: one episode of the Patricia Arquette one and I only watched 10 minutes of the Jennifer Love Hewitt. Neither
1: one of them are on HBO, therefore there's no
3: tits. Why would I care? Exactly.
1: Every acting career begins somewhere. It just so happens that Patricia's begins with Dream Warriors. This is her first on-screen debut. But because of this being her first film, she was reportedly a little out of her element when it came to time actually to shoot her scenes. This was only made worse by the fact that this was also Chuck Russell's first film. So the shooting schedule just went bonkers nuts. They they fell behind almost immediately. So, the result of an incredibly tense set, not particularly ideal for Patricia Arquette to make her film debut in, um, her first day of filming, the production was already so behind they didn't get to her first scenes until four in the morning. Um, so, she had forgotten all her lines. She's like fucking loopy, you know, running on like no sleep at this point. After 52 takes of her flubbing her lines, they finally decided to give her cue cards. Arquette has stated it wasn't a pleasure experience, a pleasurable experience for her and uh, Russell has said that he probably pushed her too hard. The scene in question is where uh, Lawrence Fishburne, or Larry Fishburne, is trying to sedate her and after finding out uh, this whole backstory, I went back and watched this specific scene and I came to the conclusion that I would have never known there was any issue whatsoever. No, again, like it, it, th- th- this scene is fucking terrific. If anything else, probably the the highlight of the movie, as far as Patricia is concerned. Yeah, as yeah, you know, definitely, it's her.
3: She, inadvertently, her best acting. She in the movie.
1: she comes across as you know like just fucking tired and run down and just borderline psychotic. Del- Delivery is perfect. Um, Because of this, it kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of, like, you know, unintentional... uh, Torture? Well, the uh, method acting versus regular acting. Um, This reminds me of a story on the film Marathon Man. Uh, Dustin Hoffman plays this character named Gabe throughout the entire film. He's going on zero sleep. And also in the film, you have screen legend Sir Laurence Olivier who, when finding out that Dustin Hoffman had stayed up all night to prepare for his his uh, scenes, he kind of, like, snips at him He's is like, why don't you just act? Yeah. I mean, that's a valid point, <coughs> but at the same time, watching this scene specifically with Patricia Arquette, I can't help but think that her being fucking...
3: Genuinely loopy.
1: Out of it really adds something to it, so uh, let's take a quick detour. Um... Acting versus method acting, like is there a better method of approaching these things? It
3: all depends. I think depending on on the role you're going to take, you can be an asshole like Daniel Day Lewis and my left foot make people carry you around and feed you. Um, but so it might help in a case like this. I think in this instance, it was a happy accident.
1: Oh, I I'm was absolutely yeah. disagree I, I, I absolutely agree with you that it was a happy accident. But at the same time, like. Uh, in our Exorcist episode, even yeah. though like these actors weren't uh, method acting, the director used tactics. Hurricane Billy yeah. shooting guns off, you know, you know, right next to someone's head, or pulling an actor so far back to where uh, they hit a dresser and they fractured their spine. There, there's tactics that directors use to get performances, but also it's it's the actors. But sometimes there's just like a cacophony of ex. Extenuating circumstances that kind of come together and create the perfect stew of a scenario. And I, I think that's what happened here. Oh, absolutely. The, the most beautiful happy accident uh was you know found in him it really getting so did. behind.
3: Like you could say, you know, a more experienced director would have thought of cue cards at take twenty and not fifty-two. So, I mean, it was taken to the absolute extreme. You know,
1: it, it, at this point, he was probably, uh, every every subsequent take, he's probably getting angrier and angrier. And she's freaking out more and more because this is her first scene in her first movie. So, by it going so long and, and, and waiting to get to that point... He he's motivating her in in negative ways, yeah. but for positive results. Uh, a good example would be Stanley Kubrick, Shelley and, Duvall, fucking Shelley who Duvall. We
3: discussed she deserved every bit of mistreatment she suffered at the hands of. Andrew I mean, look, was...
1: she has had zero uh, ra- ramifications <laughs> exactly. for the horrible way this she was treated. Life. She's uh, she's as bit of a as much she's of a Popeye's girlfriend. She's Popeye's girlfriend. And, um, and she, uh, and now, much like Patricia Arquette's character <laughs> in medium, she talks to dead people. Exactly. It all comes together. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> so, listen, like, despite the fact that she had a rough start in the film, her being Patricia Arquette, uh, she was reportedly really well-liked on set. The cast and crew absolutely loved her, partic- particularly the young male cast who were all in love with her. rubbering Shwing. Robert England had this to say about her. At least a third of the male cast fell in love with Patricia. I mean, love Lauren. It was so funny because they would all come to me for advice, like, you know, like I was dating her or something. It wasn't just her lustful castmates. Uh, Patricia's performance um has been hailed by other people as being one of the best in the entire series. Now, here's the part where I think we're going to disagree with a lot of people. Aside from this scene, I think she's a little wooden, that, and yeah. I don't... She's charismatic in parts, but I think her... It's not necessarily her fault, but I think her character is a little underwritten because they have to give so much... Um. attention attention to Nancy and to Dr. Gordon do you agree with
3: that? I absolutely agree uh, that the admission scene is her best and only one I would say that is finely acted everything else it's not that she's bad she's not bad in anything but she is less than stellar in like 70% of it there's some good moments between her and the kids like when she sees um, Kincaid again like just "Ah, give me a hug or I could kiss you um, you know there's there's good moments but nothing that achieves that
1: yeah i I agree with you and this brings in the the discussion that we we've already had this in part four our, our part four review but I'm gonna bring it out again <sighs> taken into consideration that both in three and four the Christian character is horribly underwritten I mean who's the better Christian Patricia Arquette or Tuesday
3: night I think I might be changing my answer from even to her. Patricia Arquette, because Tuesday night gives her powers to Alice and dooms all the rest of the teenagers in, in Nightmare. But honestly, acting-wise and stuff, I do think, and it's not it's not Tuesday's fault, because even though there's Kincaid and uh, Joey, it just doesn't have the group dynamic of the hospital that does bring, I think, elevate Patricia Arquette's character. My,
1: my biggest argument against... Tuesday night has nothing to do with her specifically but in the way her character is written and, and this is just a, a fallacy of all slasher sequels it's you never see somebody fully recovering from the, yeah. the trauma that they've gone through in the previous movie and it sucks and I hate to I hate to acknowledge this but Rob Zombie did this probably better than anybody and in Halloween 2.
3: She don't Halloween 2 you want. It's not a slasher movie.
1: It's not a slasher movie, but it is a movie about somebody dealing with the it's psychosis dramatic. and the traumatic situation that they dealt with and the unraveling of, you know, of who you are. So I, I feel like that neither one of Patricia or Tuesday are giving the the quality of character that they deserve but I'm still gonna give it to fucking Tuesday oh, night. Because, b- I think because, I might have answered that earlier. Because but. I think she gives she she brings a lot a li- lot more little touches to the to the character that than Patricia, and it's not her fault. She just wasn't given the opportunity. Neither one of them had a true chance to shine. But fuck me, running Tuesday night has those doe eyes, and I want to get up in them guts.
3: We do. You just talked about. Now I've never seen like back in the day horror uh, survivors. Dealing with repercussions, I do want to say the one exception, Tommy Jarvis. I just clicked. You really Man, see it? That's, he's in a fucking group home. That's and, true. Part five, which yeah. is, is
1: another polarizing movie, and a kid, you know, it's, he's like, "Hey, here's your mask," and then he fucking throws him <laughs> on a table. That's true. true. I mean, you see it. It's like twelve words. It's just not in
3: nightmare now. movies, and it's, not in any other. Of the pride, not in anything really. It's just that. I agree. And Rob Thanks. Zombie's Halloween, and too.
1: Rob Zombie's Halloween, too. But that's the one that, like, really... The, nailed the, it the, with the fo- good that's acting. That's the focus on the movie. Yes. Um, when debating recastings and, and such, uh, it's, this is an entire subjective viewpoint that you and I have, uh, but when things get really interesting is when you do research and you find out that there were other people considered for iconic roles... And the role of Kristen was nearly played by a young and up-and-coming Owner Ryder. So, question being, do you think owner Ryder would have been a great or better Kristen? I'm going to say it a lot
3: more succinctly than I did last time. Yes, because of her soulful eyes. In a, in a victim or terrified mode, like scared, she has a more expressive face. I'm not saying she's a better actress. But, yes, I do. I'm going to agree with you. Although it was probably best that she wasn't. Oh, yeah. Degree. I'm glad she didn't because, you know, start out with Beetlejuice, start out with a family blockbuster. Yeah. Ultimately, Wynona wasn't
1: cast because Chuck Russell felt that she was too young for the role, which I find hilarious because in the in the 80s, to play a teenager on screen, you had to be uh, generally mid-20s
3: to, mid-twenties to
1: 20s 30s, and um, I, that probably had a lot to do with uh, SAG rules about the yeah. age of actors and stuff, but... I, I
3: mean, to she to, to have a girl who looks like she's 16, 17 years old... Would look like you're trying to, in that context, would look like she's a 12-year-old character. But in the
1: same vein, Nancy in the first movie looks so much younger than everybody else, and not because she was so much younger, but because she just looked young. So sometimes, I, I agree, like you, you get an older actor because they're they're a little more reliable who looks young, but I I don't know. I have I, to say
3: this... If you get a time machine, you could shave your beard off and play a high school in an eighties movie, and you're in your mid thirties. I'm going to. That's 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 the goal. <laughs>
1: that's my goal. I gotta lose about 30, <laughs> 30 pounds so I can. You can uh, be at the Chevy just, Comic Relief. No, 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 uh, no, no. I, no, no, I, I get because I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try out for uh, for all the sports I didn't play in <laughs> high school. That's the comedy of the moment. Is uh, uh. learn 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 all the uh, the things I didn't learn back then. Uh, As fondly remembered as Patricia is in Dream Warriors, uh, there's one person who might edge her out. You know what? Fuck it. No. He He does does. edge her out. (laughs) It's the... It should come to a surprise. The Springwood Slasher himself, Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Now, we're going to do an in-depth breakdown of Robert's filmography um, when we finally do... Nightmare 1, and we have kind of touched on it a little bit in our previous episodes, so check out... He's been in a lot of shit. Go on IMDb, motherfuckers. Exactly. Uh, check out our Dream Warriors, uh, our Dream Master episode, and Freddy's Revenge for a proper rundown. However, we can't gloss over Robert's importance to the series, specifically in Part 3. Dream Warriors is Robert's third time playing the role, and this got me thinking. There's this principle called the Bond Principle. Where the third film of each James Bond actor is considered not necessarily the best film, but their best performance. So let's kind of break that down. You got Sean Connery, the original, uh, his third film, Goldfinger. A lot of people consider that uh, not only oh, his God. best performance probably. and the best film. Uh, Roger Moore, Spy Love Me, my personal favorite James Bond movie. And mm. he's, he's absolutely. It's probably my favorite,
3: Roger Moore, but not my favorite.
1: It's my favorite overall. Yeah, it's got okay. jaws. It's a great movie. It's, it's a great got Jay. It's got jaws. I'm not in arguing. It. Now. Agent Triple X can fucking get it. <laughs> and you got Daniel Craig more contemporarily. Skyfall. I mean, hard to argue. Uh, fucking great movie. As is a fucking great movie. But there's something about playing a character multiple times, and specifically the third time, that gives you an insight to that character that maybe you lacked previously, but you've grown into them. It being more than a role is it's a part of you uh does robert achieve the bond principle in
3: dream warriors absolutely and to expand upon the 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 bond principle, which i've never heard of till now but i just get when he rapped on this movie as i said before then he can talk all the shit he wants he knows that character it's his and i'll you know in the bond they say the third one's the best. That's when you're in the headspace of the character, but you've not gone egotistical from it. You're not like, I know, I'm the only person that knows what Bond would do, or him, like, I know what Freddie would do. No, but you do know, but you don't have to be a dick about it. That's why the third, and in this one, it established not a horror movie villain, but an 80s icon. That's, that's true,
1: and um, I don't have this in my notes, but... When Robert talks about the Freddy character, he always speaks very highly about part three. And I think it's because Wes was still involved tangentially to the script. But he always said that the character would kind of waver the farther Wes was away from it. Now, the comedy in the later movies in part two, it's Super it's super dark. But without having Wes Craven there as sort of like the... The one to steer the ship, while maybe Robert is the one, you know, yeah, kind of uh, adjusting the sails. <laughs> yeah, he's the first mate. But I, without him being directly involved, I, I think that this is, uh, this is a <coughs> movie where it's not just a guy. Freddy Krueger is a three dimensional character. Sure. Absolutely. Um, the benefit of playing a character multiple times is it gives the actor and the mindset of uh, whatever character they're playing. In the case of Dream Warriors, Robert improvised quite a few of Freddy's one-liners. The best-known example it happens in the scene where Freddy pops out of the TV and kills Jennifer. Now, we're going to talk about this incredible scene uh, later on when we get to our victims, but let's talk about the line. <clears throat> it was scripted as... This is it, Jennifer, your big break on TV. Now, he repeated this line for the first two takes, but on the third take, Chuck Russell reset the camera, and they did it from a different angle, and I guess he just felt compelled to do his own thing, so he just utters, Welcome to primetime, bitch. Now, Chuck couldn't decide which version he preferred, so he just used them both, and this is arguably the most iconic line of the series, so that's my question to you. Is welcome to primetime, bitch, Freddy's best one liner.
3: I say yes, and I know we actually kind of agree on what could be a runner up or if you hold it in higher regard, but absolutely. This is when Freddie becomes the,
0: Freddy, Benny, Freddy, the, the a- Benny Goodman of yes. horror. He's that,
1: going he's going to fucking scare you, but he's gonna say something, not even for your benefit, just to make himself laugh. The the other iconic line is this is God. And And that's that's
3: a very fucking effective line. That's
1: a line that's to to, it's like nails on a chalkboard to make you he's not hurting he's not hurting you, but he's 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 hurting you know what's he's hurting you in a in a way that like he's attacking your psyche. And I think to me, when I think Freddie, those are the two lines that come to mind. But I'm gonna say welcome to Primetime Bitch edges it out because this is something I say in my personal life, just on a regular basis. And I'm not, I'm not just saying this, uh, in the morning, when I'm trying to motivate myself to like get out of bed and put on my shoes and go to work, it's welcome to prime time, bitch. I'm not making that up. It's just, it's just this stupid thing I do. So it's attached itself to me. I made this point before. It's, it's McDonald's. It's uh, Mickey Mouse. It is a um, much a part of the, Mex- uh, the Mexican, the American lexicon as anything else in pop culture <coughs> horror related. Absolutely. So. Welcome to Primetime Bitch. It works for the direction of the character like that was moving in, being a little more comedic, but also the horror elements aren't absent from this film. Uh, and a lot of fans think that Dream Warriors is the best balance of comedy and horror. So, let's talk about that. And, and particularly as it pertains to Freddy, um, he does get a lot of fun lines, but do you think that it's, it's
3: writing the line perfectly? Does he...
0: It's right in the line
3: absolutely perfectly because you know, people say comedy comedy is meant to make you laugh. It's levity that I think the other films go for later. They're not necessarily meant to, but they're meant to break tension. These aren't really meant to, like, you know, I don't believe in fairy tales or welcome to prime time, bitch. That or the playfulness of the horrific puppet kill. You know, he still, it's him having fun, but that shit's scary. You know not for us jaded but you know back in the day when I saw this movie on Cinemax for the first time it bucked me up so yeah it rides the line perfectly part four Rennie Harlan took it a little too far I think look the first three kills are taken seriously and then everything after that is a little too far overcorrect.
1: okay uh, I'm gonna agree with you uh, the later part of the film and for me when you when you talk about balance it's it's all in in how and how you mean that are you talking 50-50 comedy horror? Because to me, that is part four, Freddy. But when you are talking about balance as far as like in a character term of like what is the best version of the character. That's the kind of balance I mean. That's, I think, uh, definitely applicable for Dream Warriors because he's not not being a clown. He's saying things that can be taken as funny, but there's still like a kind of a razor edge, pun intended to it. So, it's all in how you look at it. You know, as far as, like, balance, uh, because five takes it too far. Oh, yeah. Six takes it too far.
2: Now you're playing
1: with, oh, you forgot the power glove! Yeah, but four to me is the best balance of...
3: The 50-50 comedy but I like the character balance in three. I agree.
1: Now... I don't personally find Dream Warriors scary. But the subject matter is wonderfully unnerving if you break it down. These kids are slowly going crazy from lack of sleep. The doctors medicate them, which causes the teens to dream. But when they dream, they die. And they're not believed about Freddy. Um, It just looks like they're killing themselves. I I love the Dream Warriors. It kind of serves as a perfect example of what a a sequel should do. It expands the mythos. Without detracting from the previous movie, Robert shares the same view. He had this to say about Part 3. What Nightmare on Elm Street 3 did was it went to the logical conclusion of how Freddy would operate within your subconscious and haunt you. Freddy is in there with those private thoughts, with those private fears. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what he can use against you because he gets inside there. Now, Freddy successfully terrorizes the Dream Warriors but ironically finds himself terrorized by a phenomenon of the 1980s called MTV. More specifically, when he crossed past with the titans of melodic hard rock known as Dokken.
3: Dream Warriors!
1: So let's talk uh. about the, the Dream Warriors song in the video. So in a year before this, we kind of had the, the first proper crossover between like... MTV hard rock and horror with Alice Cooper and the man behind the mask on Friday the 13th part 6. The thing I will give full credit to with New Line is that they knew how to better Paramount was an old company. Yeah. And they were doing things the old way and the fact that they had a crossover at all was, was like amazing. was amazing because they never even attempted anything like that again but New Line was kind of... I hate to use the word hip, but they were a little more hip to like what was going on, so they made the smart decision to do this like cross-platform marketing. MTV was a lot different than it is now. It's not just like reality shows about kids getting pregnant you know, at 15. Yeah. Back then, they actually showed music videos, and in a given day, you would probably see this video fucking 20 or more times. So it was constant rotation. So Freddie went from being this thing that, like, a subsect of like horror fans enjoyed to something that now all the kids like, all the kids are enjoying. So, how big of an influence do you think this music video and the tie <coughs> in had on the overall
3: I think, uh, again, it was success. A, a matter of perfect storm of coming out and the, the smart uh, cross promotion of actually having Freddie, Robert England's Freddie, in the video. Uh, picking like, see, I was raised with a prejudice against glam rock and hair metal, and Dawkins definitely falls into that. But they are the only ones for some reason. My ire does not. My, my I, hackles how, don't. Right? You I don't, can argue I don't, that. I don't. But, I, don't
1: put, I don't put them in the hair metal category. They're more like. Uh, they, they get lumped in with that, but they're you, more of a melodic hard rock band. Okay. Now, they, they, they fucking dressed like they were fucking... I'll,
3: I'll, I won't argue, because you know that better than me. But yes, this, no, I think it was great, because it does... It puts exposure. Instead of having to wait on the trailers to run on TV or the movies, you got a fucking trailer for that coming like twice an well, hour. And
1: it did wonders for both, because yeah. uh, the the album Back, Back from the Attack, um, which... Had this song on it. It did really well. And then the music video was in constant rotation. And it was just this perfect storm of media, you know, yeah. feeding each other. So, in the music video, this is where things get really interesting. <laughs> which this video, I believe, was also directed by Chuck Russell. I think so. So, it's got intercut with scenes from the movie. But you also have the rock band Dokken And they're like their most 80s. You get George Lynch and his fucking Kaja Goo Goo mullet and his. Awesome bone guitar, which is the yeah, coolest thing about undeniable. the band. But they're they're interspliced sort of like to be in like scenes of the movie. It's cool because like George Lynch yeah. part where like there's the 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 shit's going on and they're in the room and like the the walls are breaking down. It's it's Kincaid that comes yeah. out of the wall. Instead of that, it's fucking George Lynch <laughs> and he comes and plays a rocking guitar solo. It's awesome. But the thing that we learned from this music video is that the true thing that Freddy Krueger is afraid of is 1980s hard rock. Do you think that Freddy Krueger,
3: what do you think his musical genre of uh, preference would be? Listening to a lot of true crime podcasts and reading a lot, he would like easy listening soft rock. Ted, like Ted Bundy uh, love like, oh, fucking not hollow notes, but like there was a lot, like, Dahmer was a big like. Chicago, Yeah, stuff like that. Neil Daga. You know, he was killed in we'll say, what, the 70s? Because the, he comes back in '84 as a nightmare, when the kids are teenagers; they're much younger. So we'll say '70s. So he likes the like the light. Uh, oh, who's the fucking guy that crashed his plane into the Rockies? The, oh, fucking D- John Denver. John Denver type shit. That's why Dawkins is his nightmare. Wow. Yes.
1: Oh, that, that's that's uh, that's not head cannon. That is, is <laughs> canon. That is canon.
3: <laughs> the power of rock. <laughs> yeah, it's the power of rock, and it's also <laughs> the only thing that scares the devil. As we know from recent,
1: because he created a monster and he yes, couldn't contain it exactly from the fires of hell to your awaiting years. Uh, the other thing uh, I want to talk about is uh, where do you rank this crossover between music and movies to the other ones contemporarily? So let's go and go through them. We have Alice Cooper in Friday the Thirteenth Part Six. We have uh, Megadeth with Shockers a few years later you got Wasp and Ghoulies too. screaming Till You Like <laughs> It, love that song. you got Ramones for the Pet Cemetery. Uh Motorhead, Hellraiser 3 in the, in the early 90s, and Ozzy would go on to yes. later re-record that. Um, ACDC and Maximum Overdrive, they did the entire soundtrack. So do you think that Dream Warriors is uh, number one out of these? It, I, it's hard for me to, God, to oh argue. Oh, God. That.
3: For a success of the crossover, I'm going to agree for best song on that list. No, that would either go to Motorhead or Megadeth. But for me personally, my taste.
1: Well, the but, Megadeth song is just no more Mr. Nice Guy. It's a cover of Alice yeah, Cooper. but he does, I like. I, for me personally, as far as just like the song that I like most out of these, it would be Wasp. I love that Scream Until You Like It song. Um, Pet Cemetery is really fucking catchy.
3: Um, I, they were great. Like, that's the only time when I saw them at Lollapalooza they talked. They stopped for a second in fucking sweltering heat and leather jackets, except for uh, Dee, Dee Uh Like, we got any Stephen King fans out there? <laughs> you don't know it, but you're standing on a pet cemetery. That's the only time they talked besides saying thanks as they left. It was they, fucking... They made me a fan.
1: They wrote that song in um, in his uh basement, in
0: Stephen King's yeah. basement. Literally no, like, like
3: 20 minutes. But for most commercially successful... It'd be that or like... because like Maximum Overdrive was kind of a bomb but that album sold like no that album was a
1: huge hit it was a combination of previous songs and and. and a couple of new things that they wrote and then the single Who Made Who is one of their you know their their most lauded efforts of of that sort of era on the downswing before they got back in the upswing kind of era Uh, I I'm gonna say Dream Warriors I it's one of those like you still hear it people love it and
3: when I hear the name Dawkins, that just goes through my head.
1: I can't argue. Uh, Robert had many moments of getting to shine, um, but we have to like view this through. What is the purpose of a slasher? Well, it's to slash. So let's talk about our victims. Yeah, I hope I hope you got your uh, your affairs in order and ready to rank these <laughs> because I think this may have been the easiest time I've ever had in ranking kills because most of these are fucking stellar.
3: They really are. N- r-
1: uh, victim number one, the Freddy Marionette comes to life and jumps down from the shelf placed a- uh, placed upon and it grows to full size. Freddy slashes Philip along his arms and legs which causes yeah. his tendons to become marionette strings. He is puppeted along the-, the halls of Western Hills and he eventually ends up in the tower where he teeters and totters off the edge, and Freddy snips his strings, and he falls to his ten. Back. Ten. It's a ten. It's the second best kill in the
3: entire franchise. It might be the best. It's debatable between that or the Roach Motel. The the imagery of Freddie
1: superimposed, yes, up over in, the sky. That's that to me is as iconic of a like a frame of film. Oh, yeah. as anything else. I absolutely love that. Now, Philip is played by Bradley Gregg. You've probably seen him in Stand by Me, using Class of 1999, and Fire in the Sky, which is the most terrifying movie about being alien abducted and uh, having an anal probe put in. My God, I know that we're moving in like a weird direction in 2021, and there's all these fucking UFO sightings going on. But
0: please, disclosure to God, got,
3: got a 180 day timer. As soon as the do, r- relief bill was passed, do not let this be the type of shit that happens.
0: With this you. is real. It happens
3: all the time.
1: I hope I hope they're I hope they're the type of like uh Almost fucking a alien thing. Just, aliens. Just, yeah, just fucking play Simon with them and, and, yeah. and that'll be it. I don't want any fucking <laughs> anal protrusions going on. No, thank you. Um You kind of touched on this a little earlier, but just how visceral this is in a in a kill. But uh talk a little bit about the original I mean, idea. I don't know
3: much about the original idea. It was supposed to be taking him and like fusing his feet to the like the, to the tops of his and dancing like you know dads do with little his kid. being Freddie's his being Freddie's being more intimate, but Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont wanted to take it more. We want to be horrific, like just this is our showstopper kill. This is a grand Gingol kind of this, tradition. As far
1: as like the first kill in a movie, like man, this is a like, bam. This is a knockout part. It g- gets you in the fucking mindset of like this is what this movie is going to be. But going back to what you're saying um, about Wes and Bruce Wagner's idea, there is a really fucked up. Oh kind no, it's of more sensed, fucked up and more scary. Because it's it's a more intimate kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's it's it's. But it also preys on the whole idea that Freddie was not just a child murderer, a child
3: molester.
1: Yeah. So I get why they probably wanted to gloss over that a little yeah. bit. But I don't think this film suffers from its excision. No. Okay. So, <clears throat> victim number two. Victim number two. Uh, while watching Dick Cavett. Uh, interviews Jaja Gabor, in which Dick turns into Freddy and quips, Who gives a fuck what you think? As he slashes the airhead actress. Shocked from what he's seen, Jennifer gets up from the couch and moves towards the TV. She smacks the TV right before two mechanical arms burst out from each side, lift her off the ground. She pants in horror as Freddy's head slowly merges through the top. And he's got these awesome antennas through his yeah. head, um and Freddie gets the last laugh by quipping, "This is it, Jennifer, Your big break into t v Welcome to prime time, bitch, and he smashes her
3: face into the television. What do you give this tan it's It's an iconic, it's an iconic hit the gore of it's not but the icon iconography they've even made like little toy figurines of the whole set piece yeah uh,
1: along with uh, some other yeah. uh, key things we'll talk about as we go on i mean yeah it's to me that is the definition of like the the elevation of the type of kill you can do only in a no movie you can't do that kind of kill in Friday the 13th or Texas chainsaw massacre or Halloween, or Slumber Party Massacre, or maybe you could Slumber Party Massacre 2. Is the
3: only one I could think of. Or Slumber Party <laughs> Massacre too. <laughs> so
1: would you it,
3: also give it a 10? It is
1: by far a 10. This okay. is next-level creative, and it's wholly satisfying from a narrative standpoint because Jennifer's character, she wants to be an actress, and there's that great part where they're in group therapy and they're kind of introducing themselves, you know. And she talks about how, you know, once she gets out of here, she's gonna become a an, wow. an actress, and Kincaid is like gives her a little bit of shit. And... Yeah, lifestyles of the rich and psychotic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that line. Now, in a previous review that you and I did that it's lost to time, you referred to her lovingly as Cabbage Patch <laughs> Cabbage Patch Face. And that has stuck with me <laughs> yes. for years. Um I don't want to dog on her because by all accounts she's very nice. She's a very talented actress, but as far as like her aspirations of being like the next like leading lady, you are fucking dumb. No, she'd be the best friend. As she no, she would be the girl that gets like um she's the fucking Carrie character in a movie that you know what I mean? Yeah, like, She's yeah, the I character that. that gets like scorn and then ends up getting revenge. So maybe that's your path to success in there acting. You, go. you have to be the underwhelmingly attractive girl that I mean, gets, you're not. Gets it's not ugly.
3: On. You just look like a cabbage patch doll.
1: <laughs> I would say uh, going back to the the whole Dick Cavett thing. Um, Sally Kellerman uh, from Mash was originally intended in the script to be the guest for Cabot, and but he was allowed to pick his uh, person that he would be interviewing. That was his like. I'll agree to do this movie, but I, I get to choose who I'm interviewing, so he picked Jaja Gabor because he thought she was the dumbest person he'd <laughs> ever met in his life, and he'd never have her on his show. So if there's one person he'd want to see killed from Freddy, it would be her. Now... One of my favorite lines from uh, the review that uh, you and I did years ago was a line that you did. Do you know what I'm referring to? I'm a big
3: fan of anything that involves Josh Ickobor dying, is that it? Uh,
1: Something to that effect.
3: Right as she was actually dying
1: yeah i i think about that all the time i'm a a fan of anything i already thought honestly
3: that she had died so i'm like oh yeah because i'm like even reality and then did a big shot of hunter proof cat morgan's and you brandon's dying laughing he's like dude i think if she's not dead she's like on her deathbed as we speak i
1: think i literally think it was that time so uh, yeah yeah. it was around that i'm like see i said reality (laughs) Um, the role of Jennifer is played by Penelope Sudro, whose other claim to fame is that she was in the 1986 uh, movie Fire with Fire. Never seen it. Nah. Um, got a high rating, so evidently it's a pretty good movie. Number three on our victim's list, we have Taryn, who is decked out in her finest heavy metal SN gear. She died before. Wizard Boy? I thought
3: Wizard Boy got it first. No, I apologize. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, these are in order. Yeah. I, I apologize. I will, I will hit defer- you. I How defer- dare you interrupt me? I defer to you. I'm sorry.
1: Decked out in her finest mm. S&M heavy metal gear and wanders into a dirty alleyway where she is confronted by Freddy. They slash at one another because she's got a couple of she's switch Beautiful blades.
3: and bad. Um, That's her power. That is, that is her
1: power. <laughs> um... She, uh, they kind of slash back and forth. Um, Freddy cuts, um, uh, Taryn's thigh, um, stabs, uh, stabs Freddy in the arm. And, um, but in response, Freddy quips, Why should we fight? We're old friends, you and I, remember. Freddie's fingers now appear as needles, and they're filled with blue liquid, which, are what I, I'm assuming, is some kind of nightmare drug. It'll get you so much more higher than the, the street level uh, heroin that, it that she you. used look to like it or has meth. It? Yeah, <laughs> it looks like uh, blue Hawaiian punch, and I can get on board for that, that kind of
3: drug. What's that? What's that drug in RoboCop Two? Oh nuke? fuck, Nuke. Nuke. It's it's concentrated Nuke. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that that's a crossover that needs to happen. Yeah, Freddie uh, taking on RoboCop in his in his dreams. Great. Yeah. Um. So he quips, "Let's get high." Freddie backs Terran against the alley wall as the camera cuts to a close-up shot of Terran's track marks, which have been transformed into tiny little puckering mouths. They're just waiting for a fix. Freddy injects his needles into Terran's arms, and a gnarly vein rises out of the temple of her head, and causing cry. her to
3: OD. <sighs> the like cry going into a whimper. I always stuck with me. What do you give this kid? Ten!
1: I, this is, oh. I, wanted, I wanted to give this a ten. I gave this an eight, and there's a very specific... Because it's octuple penetration? No. no. No, that that if anything, yeah. that deserves a 15. I would have ranked this higher, but there is a part where you can see Robert's left hand when he injects. You can tell that there are no needles because he doesn't hit his mark, and then he has to move his fingers over, and if you had... Syringes on your fingers. You would have to bring your fingers out and back in. So it's a minor thing, but it has always bothered me. I'm gonna so, smack
3: this microphone off the table. Okay, I'll, I'll give. I'm it to telling you. you, if we were to watch that scene Man. right now, and I pointed it out to I me, I I've you would noticed agree. it every time. You, no. I've noticed it every time. I just feel as he's shifting. He can control it. He's the. He's <laughs> the true dream. I myself. don't care if it's in a dream. Show me the fucking
2: needles retracted so he can I'll, move him in again. I'll
3: give you. I'll let you have it. I'm. St- I'm not backing off my team.
1: So let's uh, let's talk about her dream warrior ability. We kind of touched on it a little She's bit.
3: Beautiful and bad. And
1: bad. It's and very, on. It's like, very real quickly. I want to
3: say. She is honestly, legitimately a better actress than Patricia Arquette. Oh, no, I agree. She lands at every scene she's in.
1: I absolutely agree. Her name's Jennifer Rubin, and she has had a fairly decent career. Um, She played in a movie called Bad Dreams a year later, which is trying to ride off the success of A Nightmare on Elm Street. However, (coughs) she was also in some major films, including The Doors and The Crush. But her... Nightmare uh, or Dream Warrior ability is that she's beautiful and bad is uh, a little underwhelming. Not in that she what she can do, but it I don't know. Like Kincaid is super strong, and and
3: uh, uh, Patricia Arquette's character can do flips and stuff like she has confidence in herself. Like in the real world, she always keeps her hair in herself. She's always ashamed of her past. She was seeking drug. Like if she was a heroin junkie, she definitely didn't want to feel. But in the dream world, she is emboldened. This yeah, is and, who I am, and, and, that, and she goes toe to toe with Freddie, and she does in hand to hand combat. But in
1: In a movie where
3: you, you can do anything, you, you can do
1: anything. comparatively, it's a little lackluster for a teen girl
3: to have self confidence. You don't have stepdaughters. That's a fucking superpower. Okay,
1: well, fair enough. I will. I will take Plus, the. Plus, I always
3: had such a rock hard boner. For oh her no, in that outfit.
1: no, I no, I am totally on board. Uh, as far as like the the women in this movie, aside from Heather Langenkamp, number one. Oh, yeah, want to get up in them guys, and she's still very attractive. She by aged the way. so
3: fucking well. She's
1: aged very very well, Taryn. Uh, I even though like her Dream Warrior. Ability is a little lacking. I think that other than Kincaid, she might be my favorite. Oh yeah, overall, like she's 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 (coughs) one of the more memorable characters in the entire film. Um, now why will. Walks down a dark corridor Sorry. and he sees a very large spiked wheelchair. After a short verbal exchange with Freddy, Will is nearly run down by the chair. At this point, Will uses his dream warrior abilities to become the Wizard Master, which allows him to shoot green lightning out of his fingertips to blow up the wheelchair. Now with Freddy at his uh, at his sight, he chants, In the name Of Lorik, Prince of Elves, demon be gone! He charges Freddy and we blast away his green finger lasers. And uh, Freddy lifts him off the ground and proclaims, Sorry kid, I don't believe in fairy tales! As he stabs Will in the chest. Now before we give our rating on this, this uh, whole sequence was kind of, it was both edited down and kind of prevented because of uh, prop malfunction. So... They had these set of retractable gloves, you know, the claws, and they weren't working. So basically, what they did is they put a block of wood under his costume, and fucking Robert <laughs> England is like actually stabbing the piece of wood with the with the hero claw, which is actual metal. So Ira Hayden, who thank you for the introduction, by thank the way, thank you. He's like, well, I'm just going to trust that he's not going to fucking <laughs> stab me. Um, when the the lead up to all this is very uh. Probably maybe going a little too cheesy, but it does play more into the idea that you can do what you ever want to do. And his character is like built up as like loving loving D and D. &D. They play a game of D and D earlier um, in the film, and him also being in a wheelchair and being able to rise himself above that, I, I, I like that. But as a kill. Taking the the pomp the popping and circumstance away from it, I feel like it's a little lacking. What do you what do you give it?
3: I give it a six and a half because in in this movie of extreme kills, and yo, I do like it when Freddie gets back to basics every now and then and just stabs a motherfucker. That's that's nice. It's but the way it's shot is very matter of fact. Um, I and, just and, like and, if it's really because you like adding. I like this or that. It's the it's the quip before he stabs him and his like teenage very puberty. Ah! Scream. Six and a half. I gave it a six out of ten. Oh, um,
0: let's it's, see, a, we're it's, a, it's
1: a decent setup, but the kill is kind of basic. Yeah. But if you're gonna do a, a claw kill. It, it a I, slash. I don't I think it just it was the way it was shot. Because it's kind of a, a wide shot. You have an insert where he's like yeah. stabbing, but I don't know. It's just it, the scene is so darkly lit, you don't get a lot of detail. So I, I Reduce points for that. I'm all for a claw kill, but, yeah. it, but it needs to be a little more visceral. So, let's talk about his Dream Warrior ability. He shoots lasers, and he's basically a wizard from D&D. It all plays perfectly into his character, so from a narrative sense, I, I like it. Um, <clears throat> man, CGI has uh, improved yeah, the ability to uh, do that was things like cartoon. that. cartoon. Yeah, that, that was
3: like hand-drawn animation.
1: I have uh, nostalgic feelings for you know rotoscope animation and stuff, but it does sometimes, it does look kind of cheesy. CGI not a bad thing, is it? <laughs> I think I think everything has its place, yeah. and it's all on how it's implemented. But um, I, I still really like the character of Will. Um, you've probably seen him, uh, Ira Hyden, by the way, is his name. Uh, his other note, uh, role of note is Bo in 1988's *Elvira, Mistress of
3: the Dark*. He's one I of just the. Uh, watched that with my stepdaughter Sadie a few months back, and she loved it. He's one of the. I uh, forgot whose name. He's one of
1: the guys that helps her fix up her house mm-hmm.
3: that he's inherited from her aunt
1: Morgana. So uh, continuing on with our victims, number five. Now before Neil and Nancy's father. Or I'm sorry, but uh, before. Neil, and I'm not saying both are fathers. The way I wrote this is looking confusing. Neil, comma, and Nancy's father are able to bury Freddy's remains. His skeleton reforms and attacks. Skeleton Freddy stabs uh, Nancy's father in the midsection, lifts him off the ground, and throws him into a Cadillac, impaling him on the rear fin of it. Uh, What do you give this kill? Uh, Nine. I gave it a seven. And the reason I did is because he's one of the major characters from the first movie, and I thought that they could have done a little more because his his arc, what little there is of it, is him trying to redeem himself. I, I wish—I th- mean—they I, throw you a curveball later on, and we'll talk about yeah. that. But I, I, I wish he had done
3: something a little more heroic to kind of earn the kill. I like the kill for kind of a different establishing reason than you. It it puts them in mortal peril. You think they're in the real world, they're safe, and they're not. They get attacked. One of the major characters fucking gets murdered and like the Ray Harryhausen effect. Well let's let's, talk, and, about, let's and, talk about let's talk about it.
1: Bone Freddy. It's fucking badass. I love Bone Freddy. I have the action figure, uh, it's up here up on the shelf and it it,
3: fucking like the same cry that I always use in He Man monsters. <laughs> right no, like when he go like break, breaks oh. up and goes apart, that cry. Uh like it's fucking
1: great. I a lot of people don't like Bone Freddy. Uh, and that's from from a more modern perspective because damn
3: kids these days yeah, not knowing who Ray Harryhausen is. I,
1: growing up with Jason the Argonauts yeah. and the Seven uh, Voyages of Sinbad, that's so nostalgic for me. But I don't even think the effect is that bad. No, it's a great I, stop motion. effect. I, I, and oddly enough, I don't own any of the Nightmare movies on Blu-ray, so my my uh, opinion may change if I had seen it in 1080p. But on 480 DVD, it looks fine. So until uh, Shout Factory does us a a service and gives us a a proper uh, deluxe edition Blu-ray set, uh, I have no interest in upgrading because the standard set sucks. But uh, Bone Freddy, two thumbs up from me. Hell yeah. Uh, There's no need to do a deep dive into John Saxon's filmography. We'll save that for... Enter the dragon, bitches. That's all that need to be said. (laughs) He was in Enter the Dragon. Well, I love that movie. When we do number One, yeah. we'll give him a proper rundown. Um, he's not really on screen a lot, but he does leave a lasting impression, for better or for worse. You know, he he plays out in our next kill number six. Nancy is tricked by Freddy, <laughs> who is disguised by her father. They embrace, and Yay! she is stabbed. In the midsection by Freddy's Claws, she slowly dies in
3: Kristen's arms. What do you give this kill? I've got two scores, because I'm pulling a Brandon. As a kill, it's a four. As a kill. As impacting of the movie, as the setup, even though you know, you know it's not right. It like It's like a nine for impact on film. As a kill, it's pretty cheap, easy to see.
1: I gave it a 7 out of 10. That kind of splits
3: my difference in my two scores. It's
1: heartfelt, and it's a nice twist, but if you're going to kill Nancy, she should have gotten... If you're not going to give her uh, her father a heroic death, like yeah. she needed to sacrifice. like Freddie should have been in the process of killing One Kristen, of and she should have sacrificed herself. I I like the the father-daughter smultzy shit. The stuff I normally don't like in in movies, but it works because I care about the characters. But the biggest question from all this is, should they have let Nancy
3: live? No. Not from a a storytelling perspective, because then you're just going to start beating a dead horse. In order to move on, like... They did in part uh, four. Movie making. Alice. Well, um, here repository. we are. Here we are in
1: twenty twenty one. We can look and, back and, on and that. And how many? And how many times have they brought
3: Jamie Lee Curtis back? Yeah, if, if they're going to bring her back, they need they the the smart move is to bring her back like they did in New Nightmare, like H two O disregarded previous installments. There's. Uh, yeah, no, they brought.
1: I'm not. I'm not. We don't have enough time for me to get into a an HUO bashing moment right now. Fuck but I, you. but I do
3: like Jamie Lee like, Curtis in that movie was awesome. Oh, she's fine. Yeah.
1: I like Halloween 2018, and oh, I and I, I know like what they did with with her. But my point being is that she's integral. But she's to not the integral series. to every sequel. I know. But she could be more
3: integral than the. D- they
1: sequel. didn't necessarily have to bring her back for fart part four, but having Nancy still alive and a possibility, like, I don't know. To me, that opens up, the, you know, like, okay, well, maybe she'll be back. Because, don't you think, like, fuck, like, by part six, like, they needed a Nancy to, like... They did, like, but They needed Nancy, and that's why they brought her back for New Nightmare.
3: Yeah, and that's when it was the most effective. I think it would have been cheapened in five or... Definitely five or six. Oh. A throwaway line in part four might have been fine, but five or six are such inferior movies that... She would have elevated them, but not enough.
1: You're you're, you're probably right, but I'm I feel like leave, Letting Nancy live would have been okay. Well, scream. Here's the perfect example. Like fucking Sydney is alive in in all
3: these movies because Ned Campbell's an angel. <laughs> you
0: shut your whore mouth.
3: But no, I j- just th-
1: just because they could, they wouldn't have done it right doesn't mean they no, couldn't have though, done it right. I'm not
3: saying they couldn't have. But your fallacy in the scream, scream is Sidney Campbell's, or is it Prescott? Sidney Prescott. Sidney Prescott's that is Neb Campbell. Yeah, Sidney Prescott's story. Other people trying to. It's not about all the other teens that get killed. They're they're usually ex- with the exception part four. They're collateral damage. But nightmare two.
1: I mean, if Nancy had been in it, it could have been. Oh, it yeah, could have been that.
3: Pry in two, yes. I'm not saying, but it, but a retrofit. But, but then, like you could, Nancy she, could have been in the Patricia Arquette. She scene. needed to die. Okay,
1: I'll, I'll, I'll accept your explanation. But I'm saying there is a way. <laughs> There's a way keep to her her do alive. It.
3: But I'm not saying they're superior to what they did. That's my answer to that. Yes, they could have, but should they have? No, because we got God. Did you fuck that up? No. Was, okay. No, that was, that was <laughs> right. We lost 20 minutes so far. I've been looking at the timer. When we got to the docking part, it was where everything fucked up. It was about 22 minutes less, but more, it's more streamlined. More streamlined. Less drunken rambling. Because we're fucking pros. We're fucking. Oh, yeah. all right. I want to fuck me.
1: Whether or not you have uh, preferred Nancy to lived. Uh, or died. Heather was very much in favor, as you were, of her demise. She had this to say, I do believe that it's very important that Nancy dies at the end of three. All stories and heroes have to come to an end, and I thought the way she died in Patricia's arms was
3: very touching. So, that is an, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop you. That is another part where Patricia Arquette does kill it. Oh, I'll either, train yeah. you
1: into a beautiful uh, Like the
3: crying, snotty voice she has in that, she does kill it. In it's that. very,
1: she's very unglamorous. The, she, she's, not concerned about looking pretty. The dialogue's
3: right not great, but her
1: performance of the shitty dialogue is great. I will agree with you. And number seven, the most uh, bombastic kill of, of the of the series, uh, as far as Freddy's concerned. Doctor Neal uh, pours the holy water onto the bones, which causes Freddy to tear apart from the inside. Of w- rays, presumably from heaven, uh, he's play- He places the cross on the bones, which causes the symbol to burn into Freddy's forehead. The protruding, uh, s- swirling lights and the, the weird the, the, interpretive the, the, dance of death. Yes. He does. <laughs> They, they swirl his body around, and he whisk
3: away to nothingness. What do you give this 10? 10. I, just, I have to give this 10 by default, because it's the only Freddy Death that's worth a damn
1: 10. I, I gave it a 9 out of 10. I I out that. of all the Elm Street movies, this is the only one that makes any logical sense. And as much as like I made the point to say that some of the, the Christian elements uh, make it less scary, without... This, the ending doesn't make any exactly. sense. So, I. High praise. Um, so. I don't think. I don't think it needs to be said. It is it, number one kill uh, as far as like Freddy. Like, oh, I yeah, mean, yeah. It's just
3: the, the best. Note. I mean, th- there's even the, the other good one. Uh, New Nightmare has the computer morphine effects. Oh, morph- yeah. They kind of take me out of it. This is the number one. This is when old school effects come in to a benefit.
1: FX is the perfect transition because this what we're going to talk about really quick. Um, before we move on to our additional cast, we also have to backpedal just a step to take a minute to talk about the real star of the Nightmare movies aside from uh, Freddy Krueger and Robert England. that being the special effects. The crew is absolutely stacked. We have Greg Canham, we have Screaming Mad George, Mark Shostrom Kevin Yeager, all contributing to some of the most iconic imagery of the series. But the biggest one being the Freddy Snake. Oh is, yeah. Okay. Before we even get into the minutia, is there any more iconic horror movie slasher part that doesn't involve
3: an actual kill than than this? No. No. Yes. That. That. Well, you can. You can argue. Mm. For icon, icon, iconography, not visceral awesomeness. Like, maybe, like, the first Halloween, looking down and seeing Michael Myers in the sheets. That's a big, iconic moment that nobody's killed. Uh,
1: Leatherface with the uh, the chainsaw at the very the, end. Yeah. And, and even Freddy in part one with the long and arms.
3: The, I think the worm's more important than the arms. But, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's up there. It's not the number one, but it is in top five. I, I, to me, like... As far as like effects, oh effects wise, it's this is like the bit, the biggest thing about the '80s uh slashers are all about the effects and stuff, and the nightmare movies, even the shitty ones, five and six, that all of them except really part two, part two has the one cool popping out of yeah Jack the Jesse, Mark, the Mark Showstrom, but all of them experience. became these big. Uh, FX showcases that they took more seriously even than the character of the movies you know you have the chest of souls in three with the little faces then you have the big one in the and, next and, and movie four
1: where Linnea Quigley them titties. titties through thank you Linnea Quigley we love you by the way I just watched um, a fucking masterful film that you and Linda Blair made in uh, 1984 with the director Danny Steinman who also directed Nightmare
3: on Street or sorry sorry, uh, Friday 13th Part 5 I watched uh Night of the Demons last night. Oh man. I, lo- I
1: love you. Linnea Quigley. Love you so much. By the other way. That movie called Savage Streets is available on Amazon prime right now. If you want to watch the female version of death wish, um, with a whole lot more of uh, rape than, than you probably should have in a movie. That's the movie for you. <laughs> um, let's talk about the Freddy snake. Um, It unintentionally came out looking, I'll just say it like it is, like a big fucking dick, much to the dismay of director Chuck Russell. Well, it
3: was kind of, yeah, let's make it phallic, and they're like, you said it was supposed to be phallic, oh, not that much like a dick, like, if you watch the documentaries. He had this to say, I
1: immediately called in the set painters and said, look, at least change the color. We tried to throw the thing into blues and greens so it wouldn't look quite Freudian. So, yeah, I think that was the intention for them to make it look like it a dick. It just looked but, too much like but a But then when they saw it, like, oh, fuck,
3: you know, we're, <coughs> we're
1: not going to be able to get an R rating with this That's thing. one
3: thing I will give nowadays, ratings boards and stuff, that they probably could have made a big dick and stuck with an R. That's the only thing they could do better in this modern time than in the past. You could have a more directly phallic monster... And still I, get an R.
1: I don't know. I don't know that making it phallic more phallic would make it better. It's not to me, it's better, it, 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 it is perfect. The it's way it perfect is. the way it is in my mind, and it, it
3: it's so when fucking it shoots slimy up and looks at Heather Langenkamp, and you hear him go, "You oh my god!" Oh, that's one of the mm, I still get a vibe. like mm, I love it. Um, so <coughs> they
1: they threw you know a bunch of fucking. Green slime. goo on it to make it look less pink. Um shot but, it in
3: reverse, eating her. Oh, the thing didn't work. Yeah, it was, it actually, we supposed to, it was
1: actually kinda dangerous according to everybody mm. involved. And um Patricia Arquette was in that thing for several hours. So going back to, you know, the her kind of being tortured on set. So she's a trooper. Thumbs up for the performance because um I mean she very much looks like she doesn't enjoy being eaten mm. by a giant Freddy penis. So, oh, it's my dream. Oh wait, what? No, hey, um, football. No, we've kind of made the point of saying you know how much we love this as far as an effect, but as far as like iconic Freddy moments, like where do you put the snake penis of uh, Freddy concoction in context of just like the entire series?
3: The entire series. Honestly, lots of people are going to bitch about this, but you have You Are All My Children from Part 2. You know, I just, I'm going to say the fourth most iconic moment, because I, if I go break into down each one, we're going to be here for another hour. You have You Are All My Children, Welcome to Prime Time, This Is God. These are iconic moments, not one-liners. I'm just saying these moments no, I in the, agree. I agree and with then, you. Uh, Freddie Worm.
1: So uh, I know we don't usually uh, rake uh, rate the uh, effects, but I mean, it goes without effects. saying, it's a it's
3: a ten out of ten. Ten out of ten. This, these are the best effects overall
1: in the whole series. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about our additional cast. We'll uh, get through these. We're uh, coming up to our uh, inevitable conclusion.
0: Would have uh, been two forty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, we have uh, Ken Sagos as Ken Cade. Uh, you probably remember him, in 22 episodes of What's Happening Now. He was in Intolerable uh, Cruelty with George Clooney who was in Monuments. Man, well, Bill Murray you <laughs> just got busted again! Uh, most recently, he directed a short film that has won several awards called The McHenry Trial. Um, yeah, you and I actually met him. He is very nice. I could not understand a word he was saying. Uh, same thing. Um, super nice, though. Super, super nice. Uh, very talented artist. Yeah, he drew um, you
3: the little sketch. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, he's uh he's very remembered. He's one of the more iconic characters for the entire series. When I when he I he calls Freddie a pussy. When the when the when someone says Dream Warriors, he's the first one I think of. Like he's that's he is the Dream Warrior. And his 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 outfit is even iconic. He's he's dressed you know he's wearing the suspenders and the red shirt. I don't know. He's just he's uh, he's so visually memorable. On top of you know just being an interesting character, yeah. uh, he reprises his role in Part Four uh he didn't initially want to be in this film, but he got convinced by his uh his agent to take the uh the audition, so he hopped a bus it just happened to be raining so he he had to walk like you know several blocks in just like drenched rain. he got to you know where they were doing the auditions he had to sit forever and at this point he's like halfway you know, just ready to leave because he's pissed off just his day isn't going right. Well, when he got in there uh, I guess they they hadn't given him a script or uh or whatever, and they just said, "Just uh do whatever you want to do so he cussed out Chuck Russell and just took out all of his frustrations <laughs> He's like, "All right, you're hired so basically him being angry that became the defining trait of his character so that that's pretty cool. He just yelled, "Fuck you and the you know the rest is history uh let's talk about his dream warrior ability. Uh, he's basically, he's as just fuck. just basically super strong. But there's also moments where uh, it doesn't come into play, like where uh, there like there's a part I can't remember what character it is, but he's uh he's reaching down and he's trying to pull him out. Uh, it's like when they're in the the boiler room oh, set trying to get Joey. Maybe it might be Joey or one of the characters gets knocked down in there. I can't. Oh, remember. Oh no,
3: it's Heather Lane Camp when the pipe falls and but he's. He you no. Know, he grabs the pipe and left, sir. I can't That's remember, it, but it, but it, I'm saying, it like, I
1: mean, it could it, his his ability could have been highlighted a little yeah. more there than it actually was. Um, but uh, Dream Warrior ability, if you're gonna have one, being able to bend chairs yeah. in session, it's um, very unnerving. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have Rodney Eastman as Joey. Uh, you've probably seen him in Chopping Mall. He was also in the "I Spit on Your Grave" remake. Oh God, that movie! Uh, tons, tons of TV, including Who's the Boss, Checking the Fat Man, Baywatch, Battle on 5, X Files, and he had, also had a reoccurring role in Melrose Place. Um, the most iconic scene for me as a kid was his scene with the nurse.
3: Yeah. Okay, I was waiting. So. He's got Joey
1: a, Joey obviously has uh, he he has an affliction where like he's basically he's, he's Freddie fucked
3: him up so bad he's mute because he used to be president of the debate, the debate club, club. pre Freddie
1: and uh, that kind of plays into his uh, his dream warrior yeah. power uh, which only comes into play really once but it's all you need yeah but. He uh he gets when they're having the group session and they're under mass hypnosis. Yes. you think they're out of it, but he's he's not. So he's he's dreaming, but he doesn't realize he's dreaming. And then the the nurse that he has the hots for welcomes him in. Like, hey, you know, he gets me in trouble, but let's fuck. And um, it sounds like something that would
3: definitely happen in reality, and definitely not a dream.
1: Well, it's definitely something that, like, I wouldn't. I if I was in his shoes, like, I don't know that the threat of Freddy would stop me.
3: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, he's a teenage boy; it's guaranteed not um, to. He'll risk it.
1: The, the, the scene as it plays out, man, a total boner killer because she's on top of you, <sighs> and then she she you know shoots her tongues out, and you you get like you know spread eagle to the to the to the fucking bed frame. Which is great, because the way they shot that, they actually mounted it up on a wall, so he's actually standing straight up, and because his arms were over his head, he actually passed out yeah. when they were filming, because the he couldn't, he couldn't pour, uh, pump blood to his extremities. Uh, but uh, what a trooper, and uh, great, great fucking moments. Also the part where he's in, um, in a coma. And, Come and uh, get him, bitch. Oh, die, I
0: fucking, That's
3: the other iconic moment I think of when I think of Joey, is like, her just because the sound effect like uh, almost like a zipper and zik 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 it's so so memorable
1: however i will say one thing about the joey character that like in rewatches just makes me laugh and i don't know if the implication is that he's supposed to be a part of a gang but there's the part towards the beginning where he very first sees uh, the nurse where he has drawn a teardrop oh. on his fucking cheek, and I don't—I'm assuming that's like at least inspired by gangs of the time. It was like a prison thing where you get a ta- teardrop tattoo. I think it's just been him
3: goofing around because he's a debate club dude. Dude,
1: I don't know, but it is cringy. It is It is bad. super, super cringy, and his friends should have given him so much shit about that. I mean, what's he gonna do? Talk back about it? Exactly. So his uh, Dream Warrior ability is that he finally gets to use his voice, and uh, the, the wonderful scene of mirrors that we talked about, yeah. and uh, he, he saves mirrors.
3: by screaming like a bitch.
1: But <laughs> the thing he does scream like a bitch. The thing about that though is, uh, it's like it's over. Like, are you fucking serious? Like, oh, do you, yeah, do, I do you really? Do, do you really think that's what it that, took?
3: That's the that. Of all the things you brought up up in flaws, that's the only my only major flaw of the movie. <sighs> that's where I get like you dumb fucks. It's, a, it's such a dumb thing, and
1: then that goes straight into Lane, um, a, a th- ethereal angel John Saxon coming <laughs> it's okay, down. Hey baby, I passed on.
0: Oh,
1: um, it's a little schmaltzy, but I do I do like Ronnie Eastman. He's he's one of the more memorable characters, and he gets a bigger
3: role in part Four, but they dispense with him. Also gets um, those titties in part. He's, he's the one that gets all the titties.
1: He in loves them. titties, man. <laughs> I love them. Um, we talked about this a little bit in our Nightmare Four episode, but specifically with Kincaid and Joey being the third the survivors and and Kristen. Do you think they should have survived at
3: least until the end of part four? No. You either kill either don't have them in the movie or kill them off immediately. That was a smart move to kill. Because again, this is about does raise him getting fresh meat. Did, He's now all kids are his. Did they have to
1: both die?
3: Could you? They could have said they could have spared one, but I think I no, 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 because that would still trap him and the only the the night the Elm Street kids. With Kristen giving the power away while they're still in Elm Street, it's a neater. God package. damn your logic! I want I, I like these them. are movies I've thought about for years. <laughs> I want them to survive. I like them um, too. In
1: the role of Max, we have uh, Lawrence Fishburne or Larry Fishburne as he's um uh, uh not
3: a lot of scenes, but he's great in every he, fucking he one is, of
1: them. He is great. Uh, there's a there's a part where it's him pushing a cart down the uh down the aisle yeah. like the halls or whatever. And he's got his radio on, and they give you a little piece of information. It's just a like a news report, and they're talking about all the unexplained suicides, suicides going on. I yep. thought that was kind of smart. And being that uh, film is a visual medium, you, you sometimes writers can make the mistake of just having characters just Don't say say, say things. things, and it's sometimes nice to just do something that's
3: matter of fact. And that's, that's a the, weird way of it's they they call it. You should show not tell. But in that scene, they're telling, but still using the principle of show exactly. not tell.
1: Exactly. It is a multi layered yes. way of doing things. Great idea.
3: Um, in the role of uh,
1: Dr. Elizabeth Sims, we have Priscilla Pointer. That um, bitch. She's a well sought out ca- character actress. Yeah. Uh, so many things. Uh, she was also in a little movie you may have heard of called The Twilight Zone with uh, Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> who's in Ghostbusters. He just got busted again. Um, should her character have been killed? Now I know that Freddie usually goes strictly for for teenagers, but she's such a she in she a lot of ways
3: she's the she's the other villain of the movie. Here, here's why I'm gonna say no. Because there is this scene where she's talking to Gordon, she's like, You're gonna end up fired for this. She does, in her own weird, fucked up, you know, conservative way, care about those kids. I agree. And that moment shows it. And again, I don't like Freddy coming... Uh, killing the right, dad right, works. Hear, hear, hear me
1: out. Okay. Hear me
3: out. This is the way you do it.
1: Um, you have one of the characters uh, you puppeted almost. Basically, like, them in a scenario where they end up killing killing her, but they, they perceive it to
3: be something else. That would have been a nice way to maybe enter the climax. They could have maybe had Kristen do that, puppeted by... Well,
1: that could have been your escalation moment where like, no, no definitely you, c- you can't have Hypnosil because you, yeah. you had some weird hallucination. But I business. think
3: overall it was best not to because, again, they do give her that even though she's a cunt. Sorry to use that word, I see, I see you next Tuesday. Um, <laughs> like, she does care about the kids. It's not just... Selfish gain or anything.
1: Our final uh, side character uh, is the mother of Kristen, Elaine Parker, played by Brooke Bundy, who has uh, one of the more iconic scenes of the movie. Where's uh, I said, Where's the, the bourbon bourbon? Yeah. Uh, I, I love that this, but ba- you basically get this scene twice in the yeah, movie you get the but, real world equivalent yeah, and then you get the nightmare, the nightmare and version just, she's like
3: the typical 80's rich bitch couldn't be concerned but I'll have somebody get her things. she's just crying for attention shitty mom I love that they bring her back in yeah, the next movie to kill her yeah. congratulations you fucking killed me
1: I love it <laughs> yeah good stuff She's great. Um, she also has a connection to the Friday the 13th series because she is the mother of Tiffany Helm, who plays the hot uh, like uh, new wave girl, punk girl, in oh. Friday the 13th part five. So uh, they both had parallel uh, oh, yeah. careers. All right, we got a couple of fan questions. We're going to close this up for another month. First question If the Nightmare on Elm series, Not Elm Street series, were to get a sequel similar to 2018 where it disregarded uh, other sequels, do you think
3: this would be a good thing to do? This comes from Jason Wilson. It could be fucking amazing. Depending on the right cast, crew, screenwriters, given people that, if somebody, if people who love Nightmare on Elm Street as much as David Gordon Green and Danny, uh, Danny McBride loved Halloween, Yes, I think it'd be amazing. Well,
1: where do you think, do you jump off from that? Uh, do, you, do you do a direct sequel to Part 1, or
3: do you do a sequel to Dream Warriors? I, Ooh. Ooh. I mean, if you're going to do it, go whole hog like H2O did. Well, no, H2O still recognized Part 2 as canon. So, I mean, like 2018. God, I
1: don't want to get into an argument about H2O. You just keep fucking baiting me, man. <laughs> it's
3: not a bad movie. Oh. It's the, the most 90s. It's very nice, and you hate it's everything you hate about nineties horror movie. Uh, I understand is, it, that. It is. It is. I understand s- that.
1: It, everything good about it is overshadowed by a lot of bad.
3: Oh uh, no! But anyway, no. I think if you're going to do it, go from part one. Just go. You either had Nancy dead, or go bring Nancy back, and for <sighs> some reason, something triggers it the, again. The,
1: for me, like I'm going to say no, and the reason I say no is because I think the Daimler world has outgrown any singular character.
3: That's true. That's and, a and good the, the, point. The,
1: the thing I don't like about the Nightmare on the Street remake, I mean, there are, there are quite a few, but why did the character have to be Nancy? Why did it have to be... Because
3: it, it's it, a remake, not a uh, alternative sequel. But
1: the movie is so different, and, like, why not it just Ooh. be a different character? You
3: mean like the remake of Evil Dead like, is? Uh, where they're not Ashley Williams. No, I had to sneak that jibe in there. I understand your point. I get that. Honestly, the only thing about the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street that uh Jackie Earl Haley was fucking awesome. The creep Factor of you know, the psychological nasty tone was awesome, and I like the micro dreams. All the teenagers actors, everything even Rooney Ru- Mara Rooney
1: Ru- Mara, Ru- Mar- who's a who's terrific great. actress. They're
3: all the weak points of the movie Sound design in that movie's great with the kills sounding like celery fucking ripping and been- Yeah, I- but anyway, but- no, you're right. I'll get Brandon's right, I'm wrong. Good question, though.
1: Oh, great, great question. Thank you, Jason. Uh, next question uh, comes from Bert Thomas. Why did Taryn have to die? I liked her.
3: Because it's a slasher it's movie. It's a slasher movie. The the most important question is why didn't Taryn pop them titties? Oh, I agree. If she had. Uh, if Wait, never mind. She's playing a high schooler, so we're going to. If
1: she gonna, wanted to go to club, she's math.
3: 18. Yeah, she's 18. In my world, she is. All right, our last two
1: questions come from Titty Flip and Travis, so prepare for this to go off the fucking rails. Um, Do you think if Nancy had survived, her and Kristen would have been caught scissoring at a later date?
0: Oh,
3: God, I can only hope. I can only just dream and pray. But it would have been much later. Dr.
1: Gordon would have been involved with that. Dr.
3: Gordon, like, he would have definitely, he would have, like, he would have inspired it. He would have totally like subtly used to all his psychological He would have manipulated the situation and been running the camera. I admire him. He's my hero.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, our final question. instead of a instead of group hypnosis, do you think a group orgy would have been better suited to combat
3: Freddy? It would have been great for whatever porn parody I'm sure they've made, Um, and they need to.
1: Well, here's the thing. It it may have worked against Freddy, but it would have drawn the attention of Jason. And they fucked it either way. (laughs) You're you're fucked either way. (laughs) Oh, guys, uh, this has been fun. I I think that's going to wrap us up for another month, but we'll be back in March with another in-depth movie retrospective, or will we? there's a
3: mystery in March. We
1: have something special on the horizon, so stay tuned for announcements. The rants from the Black Lodge podcast can be found on a multitude of platforms, including Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Google Podcast. So please go give us a subscription right now. You can find us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. Go to our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. and for the love of Cthulhu, go buy a t-shirt or a mug from our web store at RantArmy.com for Fat Tony. I'm Brandon A. Lane signing off. Till next month, Rant Army, keep marching. <laughs> Bonus, BONUS CONTENT,
0: content. Mm-hmm.